This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Fate whispers to the warrior. A storm is coming. And the warrior whispers back. I am the storm. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one film at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and I'm joined with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on? Uh, well, just went through a, a full half hour of technical difficulties, but otherwise I'm doing great. Yeah, be fine. Yeah, hopefully everything is actually recording this time. And uh, today, to help us talk about the Mission Impossible series, we are, we are on the uh, final chapter with Mission Impossible Fallout. We are joined by our friend DJ Nichols. Welcome to Franchise Fatigue, man. What up, boys? I'm here, and I'm here. <laughs> Great. That's all we ask. There we go. Uh, yeah. So uh, why don't you uh, tell, kind of introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a huge movie fan. Um, friends with the boys. And, uh, you know, big fan of the Mission Impossible franchise since I was a little kid, really. Um, and I've just been following it as the years have gone by and stayed a fan. Awesome. Um, so before we get into a discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, head over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Uh, that would just help us tremendously. And also, if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook and get all our recent episodes and whatnot. Um, so just moving right into our talk on uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, I asked on Twitter what our listeners thought about it, and Ramsey at JXTram said, Buckle in, guys. I got some thoughts. Simply put, I think it's a masterclass in Hollywood action movies. I think it's a perfect synthesis of everything that makes the Mission Impossible series great, amazing set pieces, and a tight espionage narrative with an underlying feeling of heart. I'd also like to point out that this film is a masterclass in perf- perfect marketing for the franchise with the injury he sustained also uh, almost carrying the promotion of the film. And yeah, that that's actually it's really true. Uh, it was crazy how how much you know press they were able to gain by that. I remember them, him going on to the uh, the Graham Norton show like months before the film came out, and how he had that video and they were just talking about it. And th- this film was really marketed well. I remember the with the um, similar with Rogue Nation, you know, where they had they had uh, featurettes on the A four hundred Taurus sequence. They put out featurettes on the the whole Halo jump and um, <laughs> Tom Cruise flying a helicopter. All that crazy stuff, but yeah, leading up to the film with that and, and the amazing uh, trailer, which I never got tired of seeing. I think I saw it about ten times at theaters, and every time it came on, I would just kind of lean forward because it's just a little masterpiece. So, oh, I love that trailer. Yeah, remember the, the whole internet melting down over Cavill's reloading arms? It's a classic film moment. <laughs> It'll be taught in future cinema classes, as it should be. This was like the perfect melding of just great marketing, and then somehow just perfectly capturing this in a zeitgeist honestly like i'm i'm a fan of the series now probably because of this film's marketing like i i thought trailers for previous films was are were good and i at this point i i had already seen like one and two and and ghost protocol and i had i'd enjoyed them but i that didn't really bring me to see rogue nation or anything and and uh I had I had no real interest to to become too invested, and then I saw these trailers and uh, and just all of the stunts he was doing, and I was like, okay, I I definitely need to catch up because this looks amazing, and and because of that, I ended up falling in love with the series through rewatching, and uh, so yeah, I uh, this was this I mean this did exactly what marketing is supposed to do. 
You can't fight the friction. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's just move right into the uh, the uh, behind the scenes stuff. James, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, making of this film? Sure. Um, so this is actually the first film in the series where, uh, where a returning director uh, came back. I guess he's returning now. Um, and so uh, McQuarrie had kind of looked at the viewer demographics and decided to not even really try to pander to the, the typical, I guess, PG-13 crowd and decided to just make a fully adult movie, um, hoping that that factor might actually attract the group of people that that weren't ending up seeing the movies anyway um as far as like when things were officially announced um it was reported in may of 2015 that a, a new installment in the series was being developed uh by paramount and then uh it would be confirmed by tom cruise later in july of that same year and then by november it was announced that mcquarrie would return to write and direct again just about like what the what the original concept was for this movie it's it's becoming more difficult to talk about that with with McQuarrie considering you know he kind of shows up with the the vague outline of like a report and for this there's rumors I don't know if it's confirmed or not that they they started shooting this movie with a 35 page script I love it and then just filled in blanks in between so um there's an interview where they kind of talked about or where McQuarrie kind of talked through what they were wanting to go for uh, initially with it he said we did not set out to make you know the biggest giantest craziest most outrageous mission ever I said to Tom I want to make a more emotional movie a more character driven movie that's more about Ethan by keeping our heads down and focusing on that it didn't really occur to us just how big Fallout was until we were well into it as we started to take stock as the movie started to take shape we realized, oh my God, we've got this sequence, that sequence, this other sequence. And before you know it, you're jumping out of airplanes and flying helicopters. Exactly. That's how <laughs> these <goes>. things go. <laughs> um, so yeah, it in terms of what the concept was, I think because it was McQuarrie returning after directing and writing the, the most previous one, um, naturally it was a continuation of of you know a lot of the same plot threads this is, this is the first one in my opinion that feels like a direct sequel to the last one yeah returning villain everything i would agree with that yeah so they showed up with this you know idea of what they wanted this movie to be in terms of something more emotionally resonant um and then built this giant movie off of those bones. Uh, I know you mentioned uh, the plan was to go a little bit more mature with uh, this one. And now that I think back, I know Rogue Nation does seem like it was a little bit more colorful and, and, and high octane and, and a lot, I think a lot funnier too. Um, it, it had a lot more comedic moments and Fallout seems very much more, um, the color palette's a little more washed out. Um, mm -hmm. It's very, it's very concrete. Um there's so and, uh, many brick walls in the background. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it feels like um, it it feels like Chris McQuarrie really matured in between both films, and and it feels like the combination of a Chris Nolan movie and a Michael Mann movie, um, with a lot of the action sequences that they go in, and the sound design and the color palette and all that, and just the the general tone. Yeah, well, there's actually a reason for that. Um, McQuarrie said that when he was 
when he when he agreed to sign on to direct this film, he wouldn't do it unless he could literally be, like become a different director. So he replaced the director of photography, Roger Ellswit, who had done uh, Ghost Protocol and Rogue, Rogue Nation with um, Rob Hardy, who had only done like two films of note at that point, which would have been uh, Alex Garland's Ex Machina and Annihilation. Annihilation hadn't even come out. Like that was all he had mm. done. So he hired a new, a new DP. And then he also got a new um, production designer who replaced uh, Jim Bissell, who had also done uh, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation with uh, Peter Wenham. So he just and, and also uh, he had a new composer. Um, and I'll get into that. But yeah, he, so he, he really just kind of tried to reset himself as a filmmaker to make a film. That, and, and it does actually looking at it. If you had watched Rogue Nation and watched this, you wouldn't automatically assume, yeah, the same guy made this. Right. Yeah, it, it very much feels feels different, in my opinion, um, in a good way. And what's weird is, you know, whenever you measure these up to Jack Reacher, um, I think there's the, the same core directorial strengths in all of them, but he, he finds ways to bring new style. It's like there's not even a style that's particular to him. He just finds new ways to to make these action movies. And it's it's part of why I'm I'm more okay with, with the fact that this is seemingly his franchise now um because i'm sure he's going to find ways to make each installment fresh um well if there's if there's anything else that uh that is very chris mccrory it's the roar of the engine during a chase scene he loves that sound (laughs) i and i love it it's he's done it in jack reacher he did it in rogue nation and he's done it in uh and he did it in fallout i i i love that I, i love that about him so uh, Macquarie had come up with the idea of Ethan trying to break out Solomon Lane while actually filming the climax um, of Rogue Nation. That was before he had even decided to direct the next one. Although, like looking at his him and Tom Cruise's career, I think it's probably safe to assume that he thought he would definitely at least be on for rewrites or something. And similarly with Rogue Nation, he came into this film, as he said, without much of a script. And he just he kind of just shaped the film around the action scenes. And I was listening to interviews. One interesting thing he said is he didn't even... When he sent out his location scouts, he didn't even tell them what he was looking for. He wanted he said he said he told them just bring back cool locations and then I will plan an action sequence around them. <laughs> so that like that if, if if you if the the whole thing wasn't more you know harebrained as it was he did he didn't even have the action scenes in mind as he was location scouting. And then I'll, another thing that uh was interesting that he uh, he had thought he had resolved Julia's storyline at the end of Ghost Protocol. You know we have that that really tender scene as with uh, Ethan and Julia looking at each other. But a- after Rogue Nation, the fans kind of came back and said, hey, wait, he can't be with uh, Ilsa. He's still got a wife out there. And so that, that you know, bringing Julia into this film and then re- resolving that storyline was kind of was part of just answering that question in the fans mind, which I, which I think is a really good example of a positive relationship between a creator and fans like, you know, with things like Star Wars, we have these obviously very toxic things with just people yelling at each other. I think this, where you have a creator who definitely has his own story and it, it, and isn't like bending over backwards just to, to make fans happy, but also realizing when when the story needs to to you know uh, to answer some questions that people have. Because yeah, that was one of the one of my issues with not just with Ghost Protocol, but but like you know other people were saying with with Rogue Nation as well is uh, Julia's role essentially just becoming kind of this footnote just felt very off considering how important she was in you know in a major installment and so the fact that uh that they were able to pull her back in in a major way and actually provide uh closure you know i'm like you said i'm glad that he he kind of saw that and was like you know what they're they're right this is 
this is something that kind of needs that sense of finality. Yeah, and Mission Impossible has never really had a had a, a foothold on uh, loose ends. Um, they always seem to leave them, but uh, since Chris McQuarrie has come in, and even even J.J. Abrams a little bit kind of started a continuity, and they've kind of kept it from three on. And I think they kept a little bit in one, and they mostly all but forgotten two, um, other than just Luther's involvement. But um, but yeah, I I think uh, it's nice to have for us to be able to remember the experiences from previous movies and be able to like, just know that we've been through all this with these characters and that those, those movies matter. Cause for a while it just felt like an anthology series and every movie was kind of its own thing, but it was, you were just following Ethan and nobody else. And maybe Luther would hop in. Yeah. Yeah. And what's cool to me is that it kind of retroactively makes those feel like intentional chapters, you know, like, by the time I get to three, because of where I know where I'm headed, like it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm just watching like, like you said, episode three of an anthology. It's like, oh, this is the part where this character is introduced and like, and this is going to be important later. And so with uh, Fallout and Rogue Nation and yeah, like you said, everything since three and on kind of feeling a bit more cohesive, the whole series retroactively feels more cohesive in my opinion especially just with little things like the reference to the CIA break-in. Another uh, story thread that Amakori toyed with was having Ethan go down to like a very dark place while impersonating John Lark. And you know, the character that Vanessa Kirby plays, the White Widow, was kind of positioned to be the, the, the temptation and the influence that was pushing Ethan into this darkness. Um, and then you can kind of see the remnants of what, of what that became in the scene where he imagines himself, you know, killing all the police officers at the ambush on the police convoy. Um, it's kind of interesting that, that the original concept was to make Ethan, you know, completely lose his moral code that was turned into what, what is essentially a complete affor- reaffirmation of Ethan's you know, moral character and, you know, who he is. So as far as casting the film, um, a lot of the mainstays obviously ended up returning Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, uh, Ving Rhames as Luther Stickle, Simon Pegg as Benji Dunn, uh, Rebecca Ferguson returning as Ilsa Faust, uh, Sean Harris returning, <laughs> I'm sure, much to his disappointment considering his initial stipulations. Uh, but he's fantastic here again. Um, Angela Bassett coming on as Erica Sloan. She's great. Yeah, she really, like, she has a... She, she carries a lot of weight. She's just scary. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to find. Yeah, she's kind of like Viola Davis in that way. Yeah. Vanessa Kirby as... Alana Mitsopoulos, but also known as the White Widow. And the daughter of Max from the first Which mission. I love that callback. It makes me it made me so happy. Wait. Wait, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't even catch <laughs> I don't know that. if you remember, but in uh it was either Rogue Nation or Ghost Protocol, they brought back the mask that they had in the the first one. Yeah, the big German blonde guy working yeah, for the arm yeah. stealers is I the love same that. one. Oh, wow. Well, that's cool. Dang it, I didn't even get, catch that. Well, that makes that character even more cool now. Um, <laughs> Michelle Monaghan as Julie Mead, obviously. Um, Alec Baldwin. Is that her last name? Yeah, I don't think we ever hear it at all, but technically in the credits. Um, Alec Baldwin returning as Alan Hunley. Um, and Wes Bentley showing up as Eric, uh, Julia's new husband. Um, and then... Uh, Henry Cavill coming on board as August Walker. Um, and so if perfect, we're going to... Perfect, beautiful name. Yes, oh. for a perfect, beautiful man. 
Um, yes. <laughs> uh, there was the intention of bringing back Jeremy Renner as Brandt. Uh, however, he was kind of tied up with Avengers. Uh, I have a quote here from uh, McQuarrie where he said, I had this whole idea that the movie would start with the death of a team member. And of course, the first team member that's always the first guy we talk about killing is Luther. Luther died in the first movie, and he quite famously said to Tom Cruise, Hey man, how come the brothers always got to die? And Tom said, You're right. He was like, Why do I got to be the bad guy? And they made Luther nefarious, and then suddenly a good guy. And six movies later, it was the smartest question anybody's ever asked Tom Cruise. So I said to Jeremy, Look, we can't kill Ving. It's never going to work. No matter how many movies into it, it's always going to be the same thing. You killed the black guy. And we didn't think that the movies could recover if you killed Benji. So I said to Renner, hey, listen, I have this idea for an opening sequence where you sacrifice yourself to save the team and that the mission gone wrong not only involves losing the plutonium, but involves the death of a team member. And Jeremy was like, thanks, but no thanks. He was smart not to take the short paycheck for three days of work and getting blown up. Um, I'm happy that he didn't take that role just because I fully expect to see him in seven and eight. Um, And in a huge turn of irony, uh, He didn't even he didn't even show up in Infinity War anyway, so he was probably just sitting somewhere twiddling his thumbs. He was filming tag. Oh, that's that, that huge shoot. I'm really hoping uh, Brant comes back as the new secretary. Ooh, that'd be nice. Actually, I would love that. He would be great. I think you need somebody who asks the questions that he does. And, and one final little casting thing: uh, Christopher McQuarrie has a cameo as the voice of the mission recording in the opening. That's right. So leading up to the filming, Cruz underwent a very extensive helicopter and halo jump training so that he would be able to be able to do both of those sequences for real. Um, filming began in April of 2017 in Paris, where the majority of the film takes place. Uh, while filming the extensive foot chase in London, uh, Cruz broke his ankle while performing a stunt, which had him jumping between rooftops. Uh, the entire production had to be shut down. The initial uh, plan was to take an eight-week hiatus. Uh, but Cruz went directly into very intensive therapy, and uh, he got himself back up and running in seven weeks. Uh, that's when they restarted uh, production. And it was crazy. The, the first thing they filmed after that was him wrestling with uh, with uh, Henry Cavill on top of a, a pulpit rock in Norway, which is just <laughs> going directly into a fight scene after breaking your foot. That's just ridiculous. With Henry Cavill. <laughs> yeah, so supposedly that, 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 that the shutdown uh, cost the studio $80 million. Because they had to keep paying the cast and I mean, the, the crew so that they wouldn't take other pro- uh, projects during the uh, seven-week hiatus. Uh, however, insurance covered that, so it doesn't go against the budget. But that's that's like a movie, two movies right there. And they just stared angrily at Tom Cruise the whole time. Like any time the budget was brought up. <laughs> but the, a good thing that, uh, that came out of that was since uh, Macquarie was still shaving the story, he was able to sit down and edit everything they had and use that to figure out exactly where the story was going. As I said, the, uh, the the climactic fight on the cliffs was shot in Norway on a, a place called uh, uh, Pulpit Rock in a province that I cannot pronounce. The uh, New Zealand stood in for Kashmir, and, and the helicopter chase was shot there as well because it was the only nation that would allow Tom Cruise to fly, to fly a helicopter doing stunts over it. The, the halo jump sequence that's supposed to be over Paris was actually shot over the uh, United Arab Emirates, and they had, they had to design a special helmet that would actually you know serve as a fully functioning up, you know, oxygen thing for uh, Tom Cruise, but it also had to be, have a big enough, you know, opening so that you could see his face. They also had to like design lighting in there. So they had this really complex helmet just to shoot that sequence. And uh, it was shot by a skydiving photographer with a, with a camera on his head. And he, he couldn't actually see what he was shooting. So all that had to be done 
you know, pulling focus just by eye, you know, trying to judge the distance. I think that the, the, all the technical stuff that went behind that hill jump sequence is just insane because they had had to like essentially choreograph that entire scene like a dance, and it, 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 most of it takes place in it. It was I think it's three three takes that were stitched together to make look make it look like one long take, but just the logistics of that are crazy. Especially well, it turned out beautiful. You, yeah, I mean, because and since they shot it at sundown, they could only make one jump per day, so they had ended up having to do over a hundred jumps uh, from around twenty five thousand feet to get the, to get just the three takes that they needed for the final film. Good grief! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then a, a, another uh, much publicized uh, production issue was ha- happened when uh, Henry Cavill had to go back uh, to Paramount, I mean, not to Paramount, to. Uh, Warner Brothers to reach to do the extensive reshoots for Justice League. Had to go back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the problem being that uh, he had a beautiful mustache in Fallout. And initially, uh, McCrory and the producers agreed to let Cavill go back uh, to to shave his mustache if Warner Brothers would pay them $3 million uh, to digitally kind of fill in the mustache after he came back. However, someone in Paramount balked at that and said that, no, you have to keep the mustache. And that resulted in uh, Warner Brothers having to dig- digitally remove the mustache, and we'll get into all the crazy fallout from that later. Uh, I didn't even mean that bun. <laughs> See, it just it just makes so much more sense to just wear a fake mustache. Uh, but they the, couldn't. I do they, it all the time. They couldn't because they had to still had to shoot the uh, the helicopter sequence, Ridiculous. which you know, flying at high winds. It would. He said that they simply couldn't do a fake mustache; it would blow off. Yeah, it's it's just a whole mess of you know studio politics. It's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, while while filming the uh, the fight scene with Sean Harris, Rebecca Ferguson was actually seven months pregnant, so they had to do a lot of digital trickery and uh, use wow. a stunt double to make that uh, safely. And it's still it's a great looking fight. So I, it's oh, crazy. Yeah. Everyone else would have just cut cut it like crazy. I never would have noticed that. Yeah. Uh, another element of uh, Macquarie trying to recreate create a new style as a director was he didn't bring back his longtime uh, collaborator Joe Kramer as composer. He brought in uh, Lauren Balfe instead, and this actually really bothered me at first because I, I had loved Kramer's score for uh, Rogue Nation and I liked his score for Jack Reacher. So, and Lauren Balfe hadn't really done a lot at that point. Uh, most of his work was kind of as one of uh, Hans Zimmer's, Zimmer's underlings, so he has a lot of credits like a. As a like an additional composer in a lot of uh, Hans Zimmer movies, and then he'd only done a couple like video games and smaller movies. Um, however, as as we'll talk about later, uh, my angst was completely uncalled for. Hmm. Um, so finally, the film was released on July twenty seventh, two of two thousand eighteen, alongside uh, Teen Titans Go to the Movies. So DJ, uh, you kind of talked about this a little bit, but what is your history uh, with the Mission Impossible series, and what? And just give us your brief thoughts on each film leading up to this. Uh, honestly. I I've been a fan of the Mission Impossible movies since I can remember being a fan of movies. Um, I just remember Mission Impossible one being just a part of my childhood. I was probably a little young to be watching that. Um, I think it came out in what was it ninety ninety six ninety six. Okay, yeah. So I was I was four when that came out. Um, probably saw it when I was five or six. Uh, Emilio Estevez, who I had. Uh, originally known through the Mighty Ducks movies, <laughs> uh, that death scarred me for years because one, I didn't expect it, and two, he was one of my favorite actors <laughs> ever at that time because I was in love with those movies. So I was like, oh yeah, he's in this movie. Oh no, he just got his face <laughs> torn up. Oh, 
And uh, so that was really unfortunate. Um, Mission Impossible 2, I just thought that movie was the dopest thing um, at the time. And, you know, in that era, it works. It's it's just, it's a corn fest. It's got motor, cool motorcycle chases. I do not have as much of a hatred for that movie as a lot of people do. Um, I recognize how just lame it is and how many things don't work but i think the action scenes are legitimately good and Mm -hmm. the the tropes of john woo they just work um just for that movie and it is the most detached from the rest of the franchise so i can i can come to terms with the fact that it's so much different um as far as mi3 goes that was obviously that was in the era where Tom Cruise was uh, out of favor in Hollywood. And uh, I still ended up really liking it. Um, I didn't see that one in theaters. Um, and I kind of avoided it for a while because I was like, uh, this guy's crazy. I think this place is... And, and it didn't do well at the box office. So I was like, ah, this movie's probably crap. But then I saw it and I was like, holy cow, this movie's like, this movie's like really good. Like way better than I expected. And not only that, but... It, in my opinion, my personal opinion, it has the best villain of all of the movies. And unfortunately, oh, yeah. it's he's he's gone by the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. Um, if you haven't seen it now, you really just don't want to see it. But um, yeah, I, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain of that movie. I think he, he counteracts uh, Ethan Hunt so well. And in a way that Sean Harris almost uh, does as well, but I think... Hoffman's just dry uh, portrayal is is just so uh, he's so cunning and so almost borderline sarcastic and just he's one step ahead. But anyways, um, Ghost Protocol was the one that really brought me back on board because I wasn't sure how they were gonna go forward after after uh, after three because I know they were looking at Jeremy Renner to kind of take over the franchise but then Ghost Protocol came out and then the whole stunt thing was uh, was the big thing it was the Burj Khalifa and and Tom Cruise is defying death and and then and Jeremy Renner was the the up-and-coming action star he had the Bourne movie we don't talk about he had that. the Avengers <laughs> Yeah, we <laughs> the oh uh, yeah, what could have been, but um, yeah, that movie was just so much fun, and Brad Bird just he 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 put a shot of adrenaline into the series, um, that it was kind of lacking, and uh, and it was just it brought it brought a lot of the fun back into the franchise, and and uh, and then Rogue Nation was um was a, maybe another another partial step ahead um and that was a lot of fun and it introduced us to rebecca ferguson uh her ilsa faust who's one of my favorite characters in the series now and um and she's and i i don't know how other people feel about this but she is what i think black widow should be in the avengers movies um i i think she is just the perfect actual female like strong female character she can take care of herself she 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 doesn't need um to be rescued she ends up rescuing a lot of our heroes multiple times in the movies 
Um, and she's mysterious, which I love. And it's and Rebecca Ferguson is just an angel. So I I'm I just there's not much more I can say about that. But well, I will overlook the blasphemy against Scarlett Johansson. But moving <laughs> on. Uh, so DJ. Why did you pick Fallout when we offered to let you come on? Why did you pick Fallout out of all the other Mission Impossible films to talk about? Fallout gave me the theater experience that only maybe, I don't know, three or four other movies have ever given me in my entire life. And those other movies would probably be um, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Blade Runner 2049, uh, Mad Max and Logan. Um, and those are the only, those are basically the only movies that I would say I, I left the theater with my jaw on the floor and I was just like, wow, this is, this is what movies are all about. Like, this is why I buy a $20 IMAX ticket to go see a movie and go buy an overpriced popcorn and an overpriced drink. That's gonna make me throw up after I go to the movie after I go home, but it was it's all worth it because the movie is it's so it's exciting it's emotional it it, it outside of smell it gets all five of your senses. It's Fallout is is my number one Mission Impossible movie, um, just for the reason that it's just it's not even the fun factor it's just it's the how did they yeah it's just this is this is what films can do this is this is what a this directors are actually capable of these things nowadays and i just i think that's amazing and i think tom cruise being damn near 60 years old and being able to do the things he does is incredible um and there's just not enough i can say out of positivity about this movie yeah this every now and then you have a movie that comes along where people just look at the size of it and you're like, I don't know how this, like I didn't even know movies can do this. I think uh, yeah. uh, Fury Road would have been an example. I think Infinity War, actually we got Infinity War and Fallout kind of the same year, movies like that or the, the original Avengers, just a movie that just kind of redefines what movies are capable of doing. I feel like this is one of those. It's just, this is a big movie. And just yeah. watching the trailers, you're like, I, I am seeing shots on a scale that I just don't understand how you even get them. And Tom Cruise is flying a helicopter and doing halo jumps and running across the roofs of London. It's just everything about it is huge. And I think that a lot of that goes, to, a lot of that credit has to go, you know, the, the cinematographer, Rob Hardy, who shot, shot most of the film on these really wide 30 and 50 millimeter lenses. And every shot is just so much bigger and grander and beautiful than it ever needed to be. And it just keeps coming and it keeps delivering. And it never... It never peaks like like with a movie right. this this pack like you would think after that motorcycle and car chase there's no way they can go they can top that but it just keeps building and building and by the end right. it's like I've experienced something that I don't understand but I love it I it's magnificence is the only the only adjective I can really come up with that that describes this movie I mean it's it's beautiful in every way I mean it's yeah, like I said before, there's not much more positive things I can say about it. Oh, there's more. I mean, <laughs> not enough, I should say. So moving on to the, the where Christopher McQuarrie said he wanted to become a new director. Like, do we think he succeeded at that? Um, does he is he able to bring like an entirely new flavor to this film? And and what would that flavor be like? What makes this film 
different from the previous five films. I think with the knowledge, if you're if you're really trying to look at things, you can tell it's the same director. But without that knowledge, I don't I don't know how quickly that would come to people. And in terms of of tone and style, I think he was completely successful. Um, Rogue Nation to me felt very very much like a combination of of two things. Uh, one kind of that Cold War thriller era kind of movie where just um, and we talked about this on that episode where it feels like there was almost a little bit of a return of that Mission Impossible 1 sense of like paranoia looking over your shoulder on your own kind of thing um, with just a more classical sense of filmmaking. Um, and looking into it more, um, Ilsa Faust was named Ilsa because she reminded him of Ingrid Bergman and named her Ilsa after Casablanca. And they go and meet her in Casablanca. Yeah, there you go. so like you just, and that whole opera scene and everything, some of those shots, it feels like a very classical kind of movie mixed with this kind of uh, paranoia thriller. Whereas this is just like, it's like cinematic testosterone adrenaline. Like maybe not just like cinematic testosterone is Fury Road. This is just like, an adrenaline rush where you're just being beaten by a hammer <laughs> in a really, really cool way. That hammer in this case is a, is a Henry Cavill oh. as described in the movie. But uh, it's, it feels the movie itself just feels like a beast. Like it, it shows up, it gives you your first taste of what it's going to be with that halo drop blows your mind in the first act. And like you said, never lets up like all of these movies have like their big two maybe three sequences this movie is just a series of sequences and it's incredible because there's never really one where i'm like ah i would cut that like i was just constantly amazed at what i was seeing and and that intentionally wasn't the kind of movie that rogue nation was so i think watching these two back to back you're definitely getting a very different flavor yeah, and I, I think also thematically a lot of the um, a lot of the things that the movies cover back to back are 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 very different. Um, and Rogue Nation, there's there's so much uh, there's so much mention of kind of the the legend of Ethan Hunt and 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 his borderline immortality and and just the amazing thing that he's he's done and 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 what he's known for, and then. Um, the fallout also goes through kind of his, his just general, genuine humanity and his goodness, um, and the care that he puts into people, the one life against the millions. Um, but more specifically about the, the directorial question. Yeah. I think he, uh, Macquarie absolutely succeeded in trying to be a different, kind of director i think he more so than changed his style he more evolved um and i i think the style he went for definitely fit the tone um that this movie had and i just like i said before earlier is like with the color palette and the and the sound design and everything it just it felt more like a like a mesh between a 90s movie and a and a contemporary big budget a big action movie because it had both practicality and realism and then uh bombastic 
action, but it was, it was all, it all had a practicality to it and it was all very tangible. Um, apart from there's one specific scene where I was like, Oh, that's CGI. Um, it was the one, it was the one where, um, and it's, I mean, it's obvious cause I couldn't really do this, but it's the one where, um, uh, Tom Cruise gets hit by the car on the motorcycle. It's that one's pretty obvious. Cause I'm it's like, it's actually not. He was on. He was literally on a like the. It was like a the 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 bike was on a rig where it bucked him up, and then he basically flew over the car on wires. Like there's probably a CGI cut at, at somewhere in there, right? But it's actually mostly practical. Okay, you, there's a there's a split second where it's a little rubbery, but even then, I mean, but that's my nitpick of the movie. That's not even like <laughs> a, that's not even like a glaring. I mean, that's just that's as that's as poor a, um a nitpick as I can get out of the movie is, is how much I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I think as far as the difference between rogue nation and fallout, um, they feel like very different tones, but, uh, very much the same story. Um, and it was really nice bringing the villain back, um, and adding a new villain. And, you know, I kind of wish we could bring that new villain back, but you know, we'll see what happens. I don't think he's coming back. <laughs> uh, it's interesting, James. You mentioned that you compared this to the Cold War aesthetic of of Rogue Nation. I actually think this movie doubles down even harder into that feel. Whereas, like the first film, it kind of played up the romance of of the spy's life, just the mystery and all the kind of the, with the, with the femme fatale. It's like it kind of romanticized that kind of Cold War aesthetic. Whereas this film. I felt like it really dove into the drudgery and just misery of 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 that aesthetic. It it it's and because we mentioned earlier how the whole film it's set in these like European alleyways and tunnels. You know the the, the these cold foggy nights where you have these secret meetings. It, it's it's completely grounded in that seventies aesthetic where everything is cold everything is hard everything is dark and it's just there's no there's no shred of joy in the world for these people um and i, I it's a very it's a very I, you know it's 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 an adult movie like it's a hard movie um and i really love that i just i think the uh, like the visual style is much more uh, desaturated like there's a very grainy film look to it a lot of lens flares um, yeah, it, it's it's a great looking movie, but yeah, he he definitely I I, th- I think he upped the Cold War style. It's grim without being dark, if that makes any sense. Visually dark, you mean? Like it's it's or tonally more more so kind of uh, like like people say BV like Batman v Superman is dark and just dour. It's not it's not that, but it's very. Um, it feels weighty. Right. Yeah. Things matter. Deaths matter, and the you feel the stakes. In, in every in every action scene, the stakes matter. Yeah, and I, I like the comparison you made to Nolan previous. Like this, like you wouldn't mistake Rogue Nation for a Nolan film. Like I, if you told me this was directed by Nolan, I, I kind of doubt it because the action's a lot better than sometimes than Nolan can do. <laughs> I was about to say this is like Nolan if he got really really good at action. Yeah, out of Nolan. but like the the <laughs> visual aesthetic, that gigantic sprawling canvas, and the, the real physicality to the action, and, and as well as that kind of very cold visual palette all really kind of plays into that, that Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises aesthetic. Movie on, you talked about this film really dives into Ethan as a character. As you said, Rogue Nation, it it, it started really trying to 
just figure out who this guy is. And I think this film kind of gives us the defi- definitive version. Um, and I love that uh, Cruz is really allowing himself, like, to sh- allowing himself to, sh- to show his age. You know, he looks like at least forty, probably. Um, he's got like the stubble going on for half the film. I, I, it's a really good look, and you can feel just the weight of this series. Whereas, as you said, all previous films felt like anthologies. So, you know, Ethan Hunt's coming in fresh here. This guy feels like he saved the world five times, and it's right. it's it's cost him a lot. And we I, this film actually dives into like his psyche. I know in like Mission Impossible Three we had uh, two flashbacks. But this film, like, we open on a dream sequence that, that that really illustrates his regrets and fears, um, and then we have a we have that flash forward where we we, we see kind of his greatest fear coming to life of you know, him murdering an innocent person, and then we have an, another dream sequence later on. Like this film, like, it kind of changes the cinematic language of the series. We we've never gotten this deep into a character before, and don't forget the movie opens on a dream sequence. Yeah, that too. So it's it, and we see that. Ethan Hunt is kind of defined at least at least post Ghost Protocol. He's really defined by his regrets. He's he's like horrified by what he did to Julia's life. You know, he found this woman. He you know he fell in love. They married, and then she was kidnapped and almost killed. And now she has to spend the rest of her life running. And every day, you know, he's dreaming that she's gonna die because of something horrible he did. And you know, he's 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 Lane is kind of haunting him because he knows he let him live. And so he's just defined by this kind of fear and regret. And I love finally at the ending when we do find Julia again. I mean, let's just talk about Julia because uh, Michelle Monaghan is amazing. I I love her. We talked about we talked about a lot in the Mission Impossible Three, but there's just something so absolutely likable about her. You know, she only has maybe five minutes of screen time, but you just instantly connect with her. And she's such a great actress. That the scene where Ethan and her are talking. There's a cool thing that uh, Macquarie pointed out in an interview where they the camera there's a conversation going between Ethan, Julia, and her husband. I don't know if her husband gets a name, but a West Bentley character, Patrick, Patrick, and, and then and and then the camera will jump over the 180 line, and it, for whenever Ethan and Julia are kind of communicating in code between each other, which is like, oh, he's on vacation. He's like, nope, I'm working. Kind of telling her you're in danger and you see like the look in her eyes like there's this whole conversation going and, and, and i love like west bentley's only got you know two scenes but i love that he's not an idiot he's like he knows something is going on but he's not pressing right and he's like oh yeah you're just in the neighborhood huh and at the end he's like oh it's lucky that helicopter found you right before the whole indian army showed up <laughs> see you later doctor i also i also love that they paired her up with an actual good man like her new husband is a good man and he's not he's not some some jerk who ethan is obviously better than and then all of a sudden they're gonna get back together it's just like okay so things turned out okay for her and she doesn't need ethan anymore i think the way the way that they handled her her what seems to be the end of her arc um they handled it perfectly and i think as good as you really could have and as satisfying as you really could have yeah and that scene is so powerful because lane has orchestrated this event where everything that that ethan hunt fears to lose is in one place and they're all going to die in 15 minutes and and hunt can't tell them that because you know these people are civilians and you know she's putting it together and he just hugs he's like i'm sorry that you sorry and then at the end when he when he's in the hospital that he apologizes again she's like for what? 
Mm. You know, sure, you turn my life upside down, but also you've shown me my potential as a human being. Like she would have had, you know, the, a normal life as a you know emergency room nurse, and now she gets to, you know, travel the world and and you know she she, she basically like she, she, you gave me a chance as a human to actually find out my true potential, like something that no that that never. Uh, so really happens for people like she he revealed her strength and it's such a beautiful scene where she's you know finally allaying this his deepest fear that he's probably had for over a decade uh i just i want to cry every time it's so so powerful yeah and it turns it from a total loss of a relationship to him having enhanced her life even though he doesn't get to be in it anymore and his the time that they spent has a lasting effect on her forever in a positive way. And I think that's all the satisfaction he needs in his heart. Um, and I think that's what makes that so, so uh, impactful to us as an audience. I also like how, how easy it feels to just like acknowledge her as the same character, you know, because we haven't, aside from the, like the shared look and ghost protocol, we haven't really been able to be with her since three. And, and this feels like we're, we're right back Obviously, a lot has changed, but we're right back with this person who's who's learned. She's learned a lot about herself, and she's doing new stuff. But this is that character that we left. Um, you know, the the same person who is able to take care of Ethan. You know, after his heart stopped, is that same person again, willing to sit there and disarm a bomb with Luther. You know, it's that same kind of like this is, you know, this isn't what I do, but I'm I'll be here to do it if if this is what's happening. Um, so it feels like after so many installments, we're we're picking up right back in step with the character. Yeah, and well, since we're there, speaking of Luther, this is like I like, we really I really feel like this is like they're giving a chance for Ving Rhames to really, you know, dig into this character that you know he's always been there, he's always been fun, but he gets to to show some real emotion in this in this film and that scene in particular where there's that they kind of built up a relationship between him and Julia off screen where he's like, you know, she's a ghost and a good one too. I taught her myself. And then towards the end when Benji's like, get her out of there. He's like, where is she going to go? And then they have that beautiful scene together. And oh, when she just touches his face and, you know, go be with your husband. Like, I, I didn't know Ving Ring Rames had this in him. You know, I, we're, we're here because Ethan couldn't let me die. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about, I mean, I think there's like three episodes in a row now. We're just talking about the benefit of, of franchises and, and watching characters like this grow. And and one of the things also that I really like is watching characters grow with each other and and how much you can just infer, you know, what happens between films. And there's really like there's a funny like growth that these two characters have together where, you know, in three, he's the guy in the ear being like, it doesn't work. It's not going to work. Like, I don't even know. Like, what do you find about this girl anyways? And then, you know, like he's, you get the last shot of three where he's like giving him a huge thumbs up and, and seems to have, you know, really taken to her. And and then, uh, you know, his explanation to Ilsa and, and saying, you know, he helped her. And, and that last moment they had, there's like a, lot, a nice little story just being told with those two characters. Let's, get, let's move back into the overall story. This film is the, as we said before, this is the first one that feels like a direct sequel to the previous one, you know, we have the same villain coming back, and this time he's essentially he still has the same goal of creating anarchy and destroying the system, but he will only do it if he can, you know, destroy Ethan Hunt for for having outsmarted him in the previous film. And like 
it, I, I did find this film kind of confusing until I, I listened to a, like the interviews with Macquarie. Um, essentially, we have all these movie pieces. You know, we have the, the Apostles, we have Elaine, uh, we have you know John Lark, who is John Lark, and there's, there's a lot of pieces moving together. And, and it, there's a lot of scenes where it feels like the good guys got out way too easily. Like the, the opening scene where they're getting the plutonium, like they should all be dead, or the you know the firefight in the, in the dark after uh, when Hunley is killed. But I, I guess once you sit down and think about it, essentially. Lane again, you know, is being the mastermind. He's using, you know, John John Lark's desire to bring down the system to to essentially force him to rescue him and you know set up this whole. Uh, he's using him basically to to set up this whole frame this whole uh system to frame Ethan for the for the uh, destruction of the world order, um, and but. Part of me wonders if it this couldn't have been a little sim, uh, simplified, like or, or made simpler. I mean, like for for example, why is the syndicate now called the Apostles? Like we, they're called the Syndicate. They're the, like they're the same people, but now they have a new name. It, it, it's just like bringing in a new faction that I don't think was necessary. It just it just kind of muddies it with just more pieces that you have to remember. Also, like I don't understand entirely why John Lark is a, a separate identity, uh, you know, identity from the syndicate uh, or a different entity from the syndicate, because like, he has the same goals. He's an anarchist who wants to bring down the world system, which was Lane's goal in the previous film. So why is he like a separate guy that has to work alongside Lane? Like I feel like if you had just gotten rid of the, rid of the apostles, kept them as the syndicate, and made John Lark, if you were if you needed to have a John Lark character who was, you know, as August Walker, as the villain, make him just uh, one of the syndicate. It's just, it feels like they just created so many factions that, like, there's several points in the story you kind of just wonder what's going on. <laughs> there's a scene where, um, where when Ethan Hunt runs into the, uh, the, uh, the funeral in St. Peter's, and he's like, and there's people coming, he's like, he's like who are they? You know, Apostle, Syndicate, CIA, doesn't matter, and runs off, <laughs> yeah. like, that's the film kind of plays yeah. like that. And so it's like, it, it's kind of, there are times you just kind of lose where you're at. And I think if, if they had just simplified it, it would have, it would have played easier and just made it a little less confusing. If you know, the, the just, there weren't so many, you know, entities moving about <laughs> and you, you have that line of why do you have to make everything so effing complicated? I feel like that's Macquarie kind of making fun of himself right there. For me, honestly, I, I didn't find this one, um, particularly confusing. Um, I don't know, I've seen that before though. Oddly enough, for me the one that I've like or I guess the two that I've I've had to like intentionally keep up with the most is uh, is the first and, and Rogue Nation. I feel like Rogue Nation was like constantly changing depending on like the new it, it was constantly being dictated by the, the next thing that had to happen. Whereas this one just what was needing to happen felt maybe a little bit more consistent. Um as as for the the things you brought up, I actually really liked the apostles. I think that just keeping up the syndicate, I don't think it wouldn't have worked. But I think this it establishes in name alone why they are willing to trade the plutonium for him. You know, if they were just like, oh, the syndicate's doing that, it's like, wow, like the syndicate is giving up on their mission to get this guy back. But if you say, oh, these guys were a part of the syndicate, but are like extremist hyper loyal 
to uh to Solomon Lane so much so that they like refer to themselves as his apostles you don't even need a bit of exposition to to claim why they're willing to to break him out and, and trade those things they, you know it's like I said it's kind of in the name um and so things like that and then with the with the John Lark character um I think that has to have been separate in order for the whole is it Ethan Hunt um plot thread to work because the syndicate has only been around for maybe what a couple of years at this point or I guess however long since the very ending of of um Ghost Protocol but this char- like this whole narrative seems to be saying like you know how many times can this happen this this could have been his alter ego for a while now constantly creating these situations only for himself to come and, and clean it up again um, so the idea that there's this this anarchist kind of guy who's who's been like this for a while I think works you know like whenever something like the syndicate or the apostles come along this is the kind of guy like where he sees that and he's saying this is what I've been waiting for and for him to join up with them that also makes sense uh, if the, if the Lark character has been around for a while and has been Ethan because now Ethan's able to use his alter ego, like his supposed alter ego he's been for a while, in tandem with this new organization that that he's been hunting in recent years. I, don't know, I, I think, I think the way it's told um, feels straightforward enough for this kind of spy film, where um, in terms of like moving pieces, I, don't know, I, I I feel like because of how removed it was from like the CIA and IMF in general, it was just, it was this team versus, you know, the apostles given that the syndicate kind of felt mostly tertiary here. Um, I don't know. For me, it all kind of flowed together pretty well. Yeah. I didn't really have an issue with, uh, I guess the, the different factions together. I kind of, I kind of appreciated that they were, they were very straightforward in who was who. Except for John Locke. Well, yeah. See, okay, so to go off of that, what I really would have, in a perfect world, I guess, what I would have liked is John Lark is just this ghost who is just a lone, uh, kind of a lone wolf type. And the Apostles are some extremist faction of the Syndicate who, like a rogue faction that kind of just broke off when they knew things were falling apart and they were, they became their own thing. And John Lark was found the opportune moment to lead that group and, and, you know, goes from there. Um, I think ideally that, that would have worked best for me, but honestly, the way, the way that it played out, I didn't really have a huge problem with it. Um, I, I kind of liked the, the dynamic, but, even though it is brief, the dynamic between Lark and, um, ah, what's his name? Lane. Uh, Lane. Yeah. Just, just Lane is so emotionally, uh, just borderline obsessed with revenge on hunt. And, uh, and Lark is like, let's just do it. Like, why do we have to go through all of this? Why don't we just get this done and fulfill our plan? Why do like, and I, I, like you said, I, I do, it is a little bit kind of like McCoy make fun of himself when he says, why do you have to make this so effing complicated? But, um, you know, I, 
it's it's a for me it's a nitpick because I think it as it stands it it works well enough. Oh yeah, it, it's not it's not a huge complaint. It's just I guess when you have a film that is this good, the things like that kind of stand out. And I guess com- comparing it I, for me, I I found Rogue Nation like it, it's it's almost as complex, but I find the the motivations are very singular once you think about it. It's just everything kind of comes back to Lane playing Puppet Master. Here you have like four different groups kind of. Maybe it's just like a a taste thing, but that's that's part of why, especially my first theater experience with it, why it was so enjoyable was every, you, you never really knew what to expect. Uh, you, there were constantly like twists and stuff. And, and I think the reason... Um, that I was able to follow along and be more okay with with what was happening than than I was with my first viewing of Rogue Nation is is we're being confused oftentimes with the characters you know they're having the rugs consistently pulled on uh, out from under them and so whenever that happens to them and they're confused like oh okay like I'm not supposed to know what's what's going on the whole thing is supposed to be like con- like and we're just playing this by ear we're we're winging it and and it feels that way. But in a, but in in a way that works for me, like just, I remember a scene where I, I, I was just thinking like I, I don't even know what's happening anymore, where this movie's going, but I love it. Was whenever they uh, they pull the the old mask trick on a uh, on Walker, and then you know all of a sudden they're they're getting betrayed by the CIA and all of a sudden they're getting like, there's another, like a triple cross at that point with the apostles showing up. Uh, very much a more like serious take on the, the community or arrested development jokes of like the eight different, you know, double crosses in a, in a singular outing. But, but that constant sense of, of changing and adapting, uh, with our heroes instead of trying to like okay this is what they're doing let me try to figure out why they're doing this this was like we're all in this together we're all trying to figure out what the heck is going on and and i think on uh on rewatch it, it holds up yeah. um but since we're on that scene uh that the, the two mask reveals in this movie are absolutely perfect and like so satisfying i mean the first yeah. one when i i legitimately bought that three nukes had gone off you know, at political hotspots around the world, like, oh, we are going here. I did not expect this movie to be like that. And you're just kind of wondering, like, how are they going to play with this? Like, it opened up a whole new canvas. Um, and you know, but then you when they reveal, oh, it was all a trick, and you know, he drops the walls, and everything is like, it's such a perfect Mission Impossible moment. But did did you guys buy that fake out? I did. Because I thought that's what the title was going to play into, Fallout. Kind of the fallout of that was the event that was going to set things into motion. Like literal nuclear fallout and the figurative fallout. Yeah, I thought I I definitely bought it initially. But then going back, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that okay. That makes sense. I, I, I definitely bought it. And I'll, I'll be honest in saying I was disappointed on the first viewing. Afterwards or before the reveal? After the reveal. At first, I was like, wow, this, you know, he wasn't kidding when he said this was something like, this is crazy. They're like, this, this just topped Mission Impossible 3 in terms of opening with stakes. Um, Yeah. And then to, I remember thinking, I was like, 
how the heck are they going to light the match and go into the theme? Like, you, you can't <laughs> do that now. Um, they they ended up, you know, obviously finding a way to do that. It works a lot better now that I know what it is. Uh, and I can appreciate, like, how fun of an idea that is. Like, because when you think about it on paper, that's really cool. Like, to just create this fake broadcast to manipulate a guy into doing something and then be like, yeah, it was just us three. The world has no idea about anything going on here, idiot, and moving on. It's <laughs> it's so satisfying. And so, like, once I was able to get over that initial disappointment that, that they didn't go that far, um, I was like, okay, actually, this really works. Not to mention Wolfbitzer playing a guy playing Wolfbitzer. <laughs> yeah. That was good. Uh, and I do want to highlight the uh, Norwegian actor, uh, Christopher Yoner, who plays uh, oh, he's really Delbrook. Uh, I'd actually seen him like a month before I saw this movie. He's the lead in the Norwegian film The Wave uh, from Utag, who directed the Tomb Raider movie. Um, very very good uh, disaster film. But uh, yeah, he's a, he, he, was, he was really good for a small little role. And then the, uh, the second mask, which is, if possible, even more satisfying, uh, you know, it was right after the real reveal that Cavill is truly a villain. You know, you had your suspicions raised when he gave the fake phone to, to, uh, what's what's her name? Sloan. Yeah. Uh, to Sloan. But then you kind of reveal that he's actually in cahoots, and then he goes like, you know, "Sloan was right. The IMF is Halloween. Just grown men in." And then you know, <laughs> she gives that nervous look. But then the, the whole the way the whole scene plays out, where you know he rips the mask off and. Hanley comes up, I've just ruined your day, haven't I? And then he grabs the guy like, oh, and you were doing so well. But I bet this one's loaded. <laughs> it's just, and you can tell like a, Hanley is like a schoolboy just you know, enjoying the fact that his life has, you know, he's become a real spy now. It's just it's so fun and satisfying, uh, you know, to see Cavill played that way. And that, that scene with the gun, like... I, I remember like just being giddy in my theater seat. Like one, the mask reveal was incredible. And then I was like, I was sad whenever I saw um, saw him take the gun so quickly. And I was like, no, I want to live in this this happy emotion right now. This movie has been so so serious. Let me let me have this. And then him pulling out the next, you know, the other gun. Like this this is why he left the CIA. You know, um, with that line at the end of Rogue Nation where Brant's like, you know, welcome to the IMF. This is the kind of life that he's he's now signing up for, and he's having so much fun with it. And I love, I love the congratulations he gets from the rest of the team. And he's like, uh, like you did great. You know, it it felt so much fun to see like a full mission with Hunley as a, as a part of the team. Yeah, it it and was Alec Baldwin is so fun. He is. It was a little bit too foreshadowing of his upcoming death, though, <laughs> <laughs> because it was way too happy for this movie it was way too positive he's like yeah this guy's that was that was why i knew something was wait i shouldn't be happy this is fallout (laughs) but and since rod cavill oh what a perfect human being um this guy is like one of the most charismatic and charming actors and so it only makes sense to put him with the other most charming and charismatic actor in hollywood and them together is just the I mean, I think, you know, Henry Cavill could have chemistry with a rock, but you have these two fantastic performers and the scr- who just like the screen just kind of they just radiate magnetism and you put them together and they're just so much fun. Like every like every one of Cavill's line deliveries, like I already knew it was fantastic from, um, you know, uh, 
the man from Uncle when he's Napoleon Solo, which is a fantastic movie, by the way. But just every line reading is just perfect and uh, just, yeah, he's a beautiful man and I love him. I love how he doesn't take Ethan Hunt seriously. And and he just, he I mean, he even makes the comment that they, they play Halloween and everything. And I love his line. He's like, uh, what does he say? Uh, uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it, isn't that the line? And uh, I love how he, he just makes fun of one of the most beloved, uh, not catchphrases, but just, uh, I don't know, whatever, uh, whatever you call it um in like film history and he just he just makes it a joke like he thinks of it as a complete joke um i i think his worldview versus ethan hunt's is so that dynamic is is so interesting um and i wish we could see more of it and he's so believable as you know a very competent effective agent but also just this freaking beast yeah where you know he's the hammer and he just gets crap done. Like in that fight scene, when he just barrels in and comes in like a boxer, just wailing on the guy. I just... love that. <laughs> I love the character so much. Like to me, what it felt like during the moments of of them working on missions together was like, even though Ethan is much older, it feels like it's kind of like the older brother being walker like showing up to what the younger brother does and takes so seriously and it's just like completely unimpressed by it and makes fun of him the whole way <laughs> where he's like uh like storm who cares just like he treats him like a younger brother where like he just pulls out the the tank as a joke and runs off just, right just so flippant about all of it which i love that sequence and uh i rewatched it for the episode and my, my sister was there and she really wanted to watch it as well so we watched it together and um and the moment that that always kills me and and killed her again is you know when they land and and he just has that big grin on his face where it's like i see you uh you lost your oxygen tank and it's, <laughs> yeah. that's one of the greatest comedic <laughs> moments of of any action but really it, it gets a laugh from me more than most comics these days honestly it's just it's so arrogant <laughs> yeah it, it's i don't know i mean i guess it's it's like y'all said his the way he reads his lines is just it feels so thought out and meticulous, but not, not in a way where you're like, "Oh, this is an actor just trying to to do this." It's, I don't know. It feels like he says things for maximum uh, reception. He had a date with a widow. You look nothing like him. Yeah, it's man. Or just like he's like he's a great physical actor too. Like the moment where he peeks his head out of the stall and also points the gun and just kind of puts his hands up real timid, like like <laughs> just like little motions like that. You know, are like made into a, a you know a, you know kind of a punchline. It just works. Um, was anyone else disappointed when he became a villain? I I I just liked that semi antagonistic relationship between him and Ethan so much. And as he became a villain, you know, he has a couple great villain moments, like the scene in the elevator. You know, know when you're beaten, but. As it went on, he just slowly became more and more upstaged by Lane because Lane is kind of, is is I think just a more interesting villain simply because we have more time with him. He's the one spouting philosophy. We just don't. After he's revealed as a villain, he's just kind of he kind of feels like he just turns into a henchman. And I don't know. I wish I, I kind of wish he wasn't a bad guy. Yeah, my problem with that is that I saw it coming. I feel like I always knew he was going to be the villain. 
even before the the phone bit, he's like shooting shooting at Tom Cruise out of a helicopter. <laughs> but like, I was right, hoping. and and with the yeah, yeah, and and just even with the 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 back the behind the scenes news, and I know a lot of reports were like, oh, he's going to be playing the villain, and I was like, and then all of the trailers, he's an ally, and I'm like, okay, yeah, he's definitely going to betray them at some point. So I was already expecting that from the beginning. I just didn't know how it was going to happen, and then when it happened. It was, I was like, okay, I saw this coming. Not a great twist because they do foreshadow it pretty obviously. Yeah, like Macquarie's open. He was not trying to make this a twist. Like he, he was like, he he had a mustache for crying out loud. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I do kind of agree that Lane does kind of, and I think a lot of that has to do with Sean Harris's general performance because he plays the calculating, vindictive, sadistic villain so well. And his voice is just perfect. Um, Cavill is the, the soldier. He's very, um, he's more tactical and, and uh, in the field um, type. And uh, it, it, makes, it makes sense for him to be the the bane to Tom Cruise's Batman um, than it does for him to be the, uh, the Miranda Tate or uh, Talia al Ghul, you know? Uh, he, I, and also, I think the fact that he just kind of spends the entire climax sitting in a helicopter, most of the, like for half the climax, he's just oblivious staring forward. Right. <laughs> but I, I do love the rea- his couple his couple of reactions to, like, when Tom Cruise runs up and jumps in the elevator and then, he like, he looks up and and Cavill's just there with his hands on his hips, like, what the hell is wrong with you? Right, <laughs> like, why are you doing this? <laughs> or after, uh, when, when when after he tries to drop the payload and misses, and he's just like looking, it's like, what the heck? He's like, all right, and pulls out the machine gun. <laughs> like he gets some great moments, but yeah, he's like he doesn't have nearly as much to do. Like a character, a character with that with that kind of physical presence and. You know, likability needs more scenery chewing than just sitting in a helicopter. Yeah, I th- I thought everything with the helicopter like worked. For- One, I mean, he looks great just sitting there, anyways. Like he just there's a presence. Um, but like as soon as the first thing happens that gets his attention, I feel like he becomes maybe not an active participant in that he's like affecting the scene. Although, yeah, he pulls out the that gun and has like one of the coolest shots of the movie. Um. But like once he becomes aware of the situation, he's far more involved and uh, and he gets to do stuff. As far as the the villainous turn, um, I'm actually okay with with it because I I I don't think we need a whole lot of depth uh, from him as a villain because of Sean Harris. I think I guess the benefit of of having that is you've you've got the master manipulator just kind of isolated to this cabin over here. Um, you know, I mean, he's in a fist fight, but he's still most, he's removed from like, he doesn't have, you know, the nukes that are being armed and everything. And so you, you have him there threatening our other side characters. And then like the actual physical confrontation that Ethan is having is going on with this character over here. So you're able to satisfy like both, you know, way, like both different ways that a villain can confront a hero. Uh, Cause we know you're not going to get that from, from Sean Harris. You know, he's, 
I'm not going to realistically believe like that this guy is going to like bash in Ethan's head. Oh, I don't know about that. They Sean what? Harris is a scary oh, he's, fighter. Like you know what he was. He in... comes in with his like super brutal moves that like just takes out Benji. Like I I, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't have bought that uh, Rogue Nation. Sean Harris could have done it, but him with a beard here. He's like scary. Remember when he has the he has the noose and he like steps on the rope and pulls Benji face down. Like he's scary. Thematically, I thought he was gonna kill Benji, but as far as the movie went, I was like, nah, Benji's not gonna die. But I, <sighs> in that moment, I was like, oh, he's he's perfectly capable of killing Benji right now with ease. And that, that's how I thought that fight was going. It's the power of a beard, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it worked. I just in terms of like. I don't think you really could have built up to a climactic fight between Ethan uh, and Lane. Um, yeah, and, I agree with that. And Just throw him in another box. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, Which is what they did, literally. They tied him up and made him watch. <laughs> Uh, I, I feel like him banging. I feel like him banging his head on the floor was actually Sean Harris angry that he's gonna have to be in another movie probably. <laughs> one more, right. one more time. Uh, but I, I don't know. And then one of the things that I also liked about Walker being the villain was like this is the the conclusion or the the natural outcome of of people like like Lane, where you've got this one guy who has a very specific audience he's preaching to with a very specific a very specific set of skills that he's trying to manipulate and and Walker falls in line with that and so you he was pretty much he was a face to this group of people that we keep seeing these henchmen that we watch die in Rogue Nation that we watch that we've already been watching die and Fallout this is the one that we really get to um spend time with like i mean it's kind of the same with with any sort of public figure bringing a message you know in politics or wherever where you've got one person who probably knows the most about what they're talking about but knows a particular audience and you you just build up these extremists who gather around them and and that's who walker was but that was lane like lane was the one in the previous movie making the case for anarchy like i i just don't buy henry cavill as the philosopher like because he never like he only like he says like one or two lines, but those are repeating what other people have said. But that's that's the and whole it, point. Like that's it, what followers are like. Is but he's not the follower. He's the, he's the writer of the manifesto. I, like I never bought him in that role. Yeah, I kind of I kind of agree with Gabe on this one. I he he doesn't seem like the yeah he doesn't seem like the philosopher. He seems like the muscle of. And I think that just a lot of that has to go with his physical presence and, and uh, just the way he's portrayed. Um, and we don't get to see him as the philosopher. We only hear about him as the philosopher. So the only thing we see is him as the the brute and the villain. We don't get to see what we're told that he is. Yeah, and I don't know that we need another philosopher. Like, Lane is the, you know, he's been spouting this rhetoric since, uh, you know, Rogue Nation. I keep wanting to say Rogue One since Rogue Nation, and yeah. like to have another per, another preacher come in. Like, why? It seems kind of redundant. See, I, I guess I like the the dynamic it created, where you have one character saying to the other, like, "Why are you making it so complicated?" Like, this is the, this is what we. It, it it's like taking. He's pretty much who who Lane was from the previous movie, but now that Lane's broken. We've got another character who's able to look at him and be like, why Why is this? This isn't what you wanted before. Um, 
And we wouldn't have had a character asking those questions unless it was, I guess, within this context. I guess I, I guess I can't agree that I I would have preferred Lark, I guess, being a concoction of of Walker while he was already an apostle. Maybe like, hey, let's create this 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 fake identity now that I've already been completely now that I've been preached to by Lane and I've bought into all of his arguments, I'm going to create this alter ego and write this manifesto and and do all of this. Um, is there? I don't know if if I miss this or or not, but are we meant to believe that Lane is what turned Lark into Lark? Like. Did he hear what Lane was preaching and was like, okay, yeah, anarchy, I like this? Or or was he already like that and then gravitated towards Lane? See, I thought they were just two entities that had a common, at least a generally common goal. But you could be right. Um, but See, the reason that I kind of took it as, I guess, Lane coming first and then uh, Walker or Larker, you know, who, whatever we're going to call it going forward... Um, kind of gravitating towards what he was saying is because there was even, you know, despite what Walker, or despite what, you know, their disagreement was, there was still a submission from Lark to Lane. And I, I guess one, you could say, well, he had to do that because really he was he was relying on the on Lane's assets and the apostles and stuff like that. But I think it would have been super easy to have just killed lane right there and then be like hey this is what he said his last wishes were so to me it still felt like despite his frustrations with him he's like this is the guy in charge and we're doing it his way and so like he came to his belief it wasn't that he was innately this kind of philosopher type person but he was just won over by the rhetoric lane was lane was preaching and and wrote that manifesto being inspired by lane not exactly being like this this is the conclusion that i have come to yeah i guess it's just something where we needed more information about what exactly his like we needed more philosophizing from him and i i love that we've come this far without even talking about the action scenes that's a sign of a really strong story <laughs> um let's just dj like what is there's so many but what are some action sequences that you really want to highlight here Oh man, the bathroom scene. Oh dude. It it's it's so good. One, I love I love a good uh dance club sequence, which we kinda got, but we didn't get a fight in the club, but we that's as close as we were gonna get. Um, but I like, I don't know what it is about Tom Cruise walking through a dance club, but it's just awesome. The dude, everything he does is the coolest <laughs> it, possible way to do that. Uh, thing. Yeah. It's, it's also shot really, really cool. There's, oh yeah. There's uh, a particular shot where, oh, man, I just, you could probably frame it and put it up on a wall where you've got like the DJ kind of dominating yes. the lower right corner and the lights are just, you've got. Pretty much the entirety of the upper half is just like wall space with lights and the bottom half is like the rave happening. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And and then it goes in and then they go into the bathroom. Um, and I'm not going to map out the whole scene, but I'm, I'll just, just give it. you the it's highlights. Amazing. But, <laughs> but uh, one thing I do love, and this goes back to kind of the technical aspects I had briefly mentioned before, but um, the sound design on this movie is so um efficiently and and just well placed and well done um for one 
the gunshots all sound like real gunshots. Um, and that, that was one of the things that I, um, that kind of made me think of Michael Mann, um, Mm -hmm. and his, uh, his, uh, inspiration he might've had on, on Macquarie, um, and just the way he shoots a, 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 a gunfight, but, uh, also just hearing the, the bass from the club inside of the bathroom and no musical score inside was great. You just hear the power of the punches and the crashing of the concrete and the glass. And it's just, it's just destruction. And you can hear the grunts and I, I love, <laughs> I love Tom Cruise's little grunts. His, yeah. Like he does, he does these little, these little high pitched grunts when he's, when he's either running at someone or when he's, when he's like blocking or, or throwing a punch. And, um, he sounds like Link a little bit, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, and then you get the contrast from, from, uh, Ethan Hunt's kind of finesse and more defensive fight style. I love the way he blocks punches where he like throws his entire body yes. and his elbows up to block yeah. every punch. It's it's so cool looking. It's great. Yeah. And then, and then you get the contrast of Henry Cavill his just his long arms and big shoulders just throwing haymakers and you can i don't know what it is but you can just feel the power behind every punch and and the guy they're fighting is beating them both with general ease almost um up until guns get involved it's like uh, the guy, like Eco Wise from the Raid movie, like with all of his fighting yeah. tactics, comes in like, like Cavill and like crew, like everyone in there's a, like a true athlete, and Hunt and um, Walker, they're both like the best fighters you'll ever see. But right. the, and, and it shows like they they obviously have a lot of skill in that scene, but they are just entirely outmatched by this crazy guy who's just right. And that that stunt the stuntman the stuntman who plays them is really good, like. Oh yeah, he has this really scary snarl and this swagger. Like I love when after, like he has he has Walker there and he just, like punches him in the face and kicks him and then he straightens his coat staring at Ethan, and like <laughs> Ethan like is like regretting all of his life choices. For right, yeah, he, he gives him a look and then he just runs at him because he doesn't know what else to do. I love that. Um, yeah, he just he has a he has this dangerous presence, uh, even amidst being in the presence of a Henry Cavill and a Tom Cruise. And I love that this fight scene doesn't cheat. Like these these guys are all athletes and they are mm-hmm. able to just do the whole thing. Like there might be one or two shots where it's a stuntman instead of Henry Cavill or or Tom Cruise, but there everything is really happening and they just they pull the camera back and we see it. Like there's a little bit of speed ramping and and, and you know and uh to make the uh fights the punches la- uh land harder. But otherwise it's all happening, man. Yeah. It's amazing. This, I don't know if I'm just like riding too high off of this movie because it's so recent, but it might be my favorite fist fight. Um, I know that that a lot of people choose right, and I get it. The raid is incredible. But for me, what th- like this is an incredible balancing act where, and I may be in the minority, and I'll just have to accept that. Some some of the fights in the raid, I think, went on a little bit too long. And I think one thing that sells a fight scene for me is when it feels real. And and in movie, you know, like if you got like a freaking glass 
hold, like hang, like stabbed in your neck and you're still fighting for five more minutes, <laughs> it starts to feel a little less like, I mean, okay, like they could probably like cut his eyeball out and he's going to fight for 10 more minutes. Like it's, this isn't real anymore, but here it felt scary. Like every punch felt like it landed. Like this guy is going to fight less well now because of this. Like he's hurt. And, uh, I remember whenever he throws the guy through the mirror, I like in the theater, I just exhale. It wasn't even like an actual gasp or a word. I said, I was just like, I think I'd been hold, like holding in my breath because I knew like, oh, this is the scene in the trailer that like, this is the scene of why I'm here. And when it happened, I just, it completely blew me. Something about the way the camera moved, just kind of following the motion there. And then whenever it's like a top down view and we like move into the like the the stall itself and we're just like looking down as he's like blocking and everything and and just the display of the different fighting styles one of the things that we've talked about going through the series was that like ethan is obviously very very capable as a fighter um he's obviously really strong but he's he's not going to be like the most well-versed like fighter in, in the room He's not going to be the strongest guy. He's just going to he's going to be the guy who does what he does here where it's like screw it, I'm just going to tackle him. I don't know what to do. <laughs> he's he's like a really heightened everyman even in terms of action where he's like I'm I'm keeping up as best as I can, but but I don't I'm not as strong as this guy over here and I sure don't know how to do what this guy's doing. Um and then you've got Cavill who is just pure bulk and muscle mass like just launching these enormous fists at you consistently um and like reloading his arms for the next girl around it's like incredible and then you've got the other guy who is almost just like making fighting look like a dance and you've got all of these it'd be one just to have any of those two take on each other but you've got these three completely distinct ways of fighting just interacting with each other and the way the camera highlights what's happening now are we like when we see him pull the the pipe out from the sink i'm like like it was a like batman pulling the sink out moment for me where i'm like oh crap like this is crazy Yeah, it was a bit of a heightened reality moment where it took me out of the movie a little bit but i was like you know what i buy it i'm okay with it at first i was like eh but then i looked at the size of his arms again and i was like okay no (laughs) the logic works uh but yeah like it doesn't go on too long for me like it leaves me wanting more in a good way um and because of its brevity, I never feel like, like okay, these guys aren't in danger because he just took like 8,000 hits to the head and he's still fighting. Like it just, it felt just real enough to feel dangerous. And and I think one thing that's important for a fight is, is setting. Like if a fight's going to be iconic, it also should just like, the environment should feel iconic as well. And just like that pure white bathroom with the, the mirrors dividing stuff, it just... Everything about the fight scene was just so perfect for me. Well, I think every action scene in this film deserves that much attention, but I'm not sure we can, we can go on <laughs> that long as every action scene. Um, just we got run through, but uh, you know, the halo jump is crazy. Just the the way that you know the cameraman runs backwards and jumps out of the plane. Tom Cruise jumps after him. Then he has to come up and zoom up and cut and stop exactly three feet from the camera and hold there before going down past like. How do you? I don't even know how that's done. But just like the, the Tom Cruise as you know, as a skydiver and that and that cameraman deserve all the props in the world for how beautifully choreographed that sequence is, and the fact that they did it for real 
it gives it a sense of energy that you can't just can't have like the way that the camera is constantly just struggling to keep them in frame because the you know the wind and the movement there's just a there's a feel about it we've seen um so many amazing skydiving scenes before but never one that just felt this, this immediate and real i adore that skydiving scene the the scenery of it the clouds the lightning storm the the score which i know we'll talk about later um everything about that is it's gorgeous it's gorgeous to look at and it's it's in the same category as the uh, halo jump from godzilla in my opinion it it feels so dangerous i remember seeing it in imax whenever yes. he jumps out when the the lightning bolt struck like the entire theater gasped together it it completely took me off guard and it gave the rest of the scene just such a sense of immediacy and urgency. And um, and the, with the camera, like you said, it, there's two things happening there. And I don't understand how they're both happening at once where it's like it feels like the camera's trying to keep the action in frame and everything's moving so fast. But it's also still just giving like really cool compositions all at once where like when it's pulled back and it's just almost like swiveling around the action, it feels desperate and intentional at the same time. And I don't really know how he did that, but it just, I don't know, it, it felt dangerous the way it was supposed to, but it also felt like I'm like, I'm watching a very professional movie being made at the same time. Yeah. It's just fantastic. Uh, then we have that, the, the, like the kind of the, the centerpiece of the film, which is the convoy heist, the motorcycle chase and the car chase in this one long extended, like 20, 30 minute sequence. Um, just the way it's built up to with the music as the helicopters coming in and, Hunt's like we don't know what Hunt's gonna do. I love that we don't know the plan going into that scene. Like we've saw, we've seen his nightmare where like of him murdering innocent people, so we know like that can't happen. But how are we gonna stop it? And just the way he goes about you know ramming the truck and just dumping the guys out of the back, like it's it's so like oh good like you you were so afraid that he's gonna do something terrible, um, because of just how well the suspense has been built and and they go on the motorcycles and the motorcycle chase is. Just like they created the world's best motorcycle chase in the previous film, and then they made they matched it again in this film. It is so incredible, just the the speed and how precarious he's like he, the way he like, has to drag his foot along, you know, alongside him to keep his balance, and the cars are speeding around him. You know, you know some of them are digital, but a lot of those cars are real, and he's not wearing a helmet. It's just it's it's stupid, but I'm glad they did it. <laughs> we can thank Tony Scott for showing Hollywood how great Tom Cruise looks on a motorcycle. <laughs> I, Rogue Nation's motorcycle chase is amazing, but but for me, this is this is my favorite cinematic motorcycle chase scene of all time by by a wide margin for me, just because it feels so dangerous, and I think it's a lot more complex. There's just so much to it. There's so many different moments. And I remember um, one of the reasons I was so hyped going into it was just the reception it was getting, not just from fans, but from like the industry, from rev- uh, critics, and then people in the industry. I remember reading a tweet from Ryan Johnson saying, Christopher McQuarrie is like reinventing how we're going to shoot action. Like, this is insane. And so I remember that, like, those ideas came into my mind watching that motorcycle chase where he's, he's going um, through... Uh, uh, forgetting what it's called, that that circular area, the Arc de Triomphe. Yeah, when, when he's going through that, 
and he's just kind of riding in circles trying to to miss all of the cars. We're like right there with him as as like you know what you're saying where he's putting his foot down and and he's uh he's barely dodging cars and then we kind of move to the left of him and pull out. We're like we're we're somehow like as the camera matching speed going around these circles like almost dodging cars ourselves. It just feels so dangerous the whole time and and then it's like the more typical kind of highway chase scenes and then everything that happens with Ilsa whenever she's going past like this is a, another great use of sound design whenever she's driving past the columns and they're <laughs> using the sounds yes. of the columns to help indicate like just the speed picking up it's just amazing and and despite the fact that our brain tells us that you know like he wasn't going that fast when he falls off the motorcycle like this and that for the movie it it works 100% for me and it's it's like such a the first time seeing it despite the fa- even being in the trailer the first time seeing it was like this like gut punch of just like all of the motion taken out from you at once it's it's such an incredible sequence yeah and then we get that, that great little break in between where they had that altercation with the policewoman which Again, this scene I, I really love because you know it's again highlighting who Ethan is as a person. You know, when, when the door opens up, you're like, it's a cop right there, and you know Walker Walker will will not hesitate to kill this woman, and he's like, just please go away, please leave. And the the, the, the actress is really good, uh, but then yeah. the whole scene like takes up another notch with the bad guys. The goons arrive, and it's like it's almost like a western the way he just the quick draw. It, it feels I like it's that. it's one of those uh, Sergio Leone. Uh, Clint Eastwood movies and it's just so great and, and I love just the anguish in Hunt's eyes like he the whole thing he's, he's, he's trying to save innocent lives and he will and he doesn't he cannot allow his missions to hurt innocent people and there's a casualty here and he just goes up and like he you know he makes sure she has pressure in the wound he's like I'm sorry and you just yeah. Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise is a great actor this is like there's, there's no question there anymore you know people have you know questioned that before but no this guy's amazing and real quick that uh when he does shoot those guys saving the cop, that scene did remind me briefly of, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Collateral, but mm-hmm. uh, there's a there's another quick draw scene he has oh, in that yeah. movie where he gives this gangbanger two in the chest and one in the head, mm. and it it was almost it wasn't the same, but it felt the same, like the same, same sound design. The bullets are loud and powerful and efficient and they hit all their marks. He doesn't and, and, miss. And it just leaves you wondering like, what, what, what just happened, man? It's right. So it's fast. like, did he just, he just did that. And initially the beginning of that scene too, I thought it was going to be played off as a joke because it felt a little bit like a joke when, when they're like, <laughs> okay, everything's cool. And then all of a sudden they open the door and there's a cop. And there's a standoff. And I remember my theater, everybody was like, ah, that's so funny because they thought they were all right. And then and then you realize this is they're playing for keeps here and they she can't turn them in. So where are we going from here? And then the guys show up and then it, it builds up. And like you and, you know, the rest is history. But um, I think that it's kind of a they did a good job um, with letting that scene play out a little bit differently than we're used to seeing. Mm, and it's based in character, like Walker's character, Ethan's character, the, the woman's like her integrity as a police officer, like all of that is, it's, it's all emotionally grounded. Right. Um, then we lead into an amazing car chase. There's so many awesome scenes, like the way he, he comes around and does that spin where he spins 
backwards down the stairs oh, and onto the road below. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, or yeah. just a wide shot where he kind of comes around a, a corner and just like does a, is like drifting the entire way around and goes down another road. It's just, oh, it's again, you're one of the great car sequences. After doing you know, you know, two great car chases in his previous films, like, I don't know, McQuarrie's a, a mad genius. And the way, I don't know how he makes speed look so fast. You know, car chases are a grand cinematic tradition, and yet he's come and is able to, you know, make some of the best ever ev- with every try. It's like he made a more uh, comprehensive Paul Greengrass car chase. Mm, that makes sense. Okay, <laughs> then we get the amazing foot chase. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, there are there's a there's a shot that I think rivals the the running shot uh, in Shanghai for Mission Impossible Three, where. It's, it's actually the shot where he breaks his ankle. It's this long take where in front yeah. of him, the camera whips around and then goes behind him as he jumps between the buildings and goes up in the air. Like it's a, it's like a long, like forty second shot where he actually breaks his ankle. And you can hear his like yell of pain. And I love that they kept the shot where Tom Cruise he broke his ankle. He hoists himself up on the roof and then runs past camera. And you can like you can see the limp too. Yeah, like it. Oh, yeah, so good. And then they, they worked that limp in through the rest of the chase. You know, which was shot later on but just the dedication as an actor to like well i, I gotta get this shot and we're not gonna come back so i'm gonna walk you'll keep running on my broken foot god bless tom cruise we do not deserve <laughs> the action he's giving us like I'm, I'm thinking like watching the special features like if tom cruise quit acting there are a hundred different careers that he could join and and be one of the best at, at any given moment like he could be a helicopter pilot he could be a skydiver he could be <laughs> you know he could probably you know, be a martial arts instructor. He could be a, a you know a racer. He could just like, be a stunt. Guy. Like, you know, he's like he, yeah, stunt man, a stunt driver. Like, like he, everything he does, he his work ethic is on like inhuman. Yeah, the, the, you know, the way the fact that he was able to, in pre production to to you know to do through, go through all the safety levels to reg, to rate as you know a halo jumper and then to learn to fly a helicopter and not just fly a helicopter but be be qualified as like a, a stunt flyer. Um, and like doing all these crazy moves and like moving to the, the helicopter chase, we, they were talking about the behind the scenes where, you know, he, not only is he flying the helicopter, but he has to operate the cameras. Like there's a couple like subtle zooms or, or focus shifts where he has to do that himself because, you know, they can't get another helicopter close enough to control the cameras. So he's flying the helicopter. He's acting, you know, acting and giving out his lines and controlling the cameras at the same time. Like, what is, what is this? You know, now that you bring that up, I will. I hope, I very much hope that Tom Cruise survives the next few films, <laughs> eventually to jump into the directorial seat and oh, make his own action film and direct uh, himself. And he could, like, listening to McQuarrie, the way that the fact, the way he understands story, like, like he he's he's talking about like how he's constantly involved in the writing and like. He's just playing. He understands the emotion of the scene, and like so many of the great things that happen are, you know, from him. You know, just just trying to make every scene the most emotionally impactful it could be for the audience. Like I, I think he could probably be a fantastic director. Yeah, that, my like I, for for maybe uh, a handful of of years, I was very uh, very on board with the hate Tom Cruise train. Um, unfortunately, and and I came around. To, to really appreciate him after I watched Jack Reacher years ago. But, uh, but man, going through this series has elevated my appreciation for him even more and, and just, like, respect because 
you know, it's a lot of people will have input in their characters and be like, oh yeah, like me and the writer, like we really sat down together and worked things out. But a lot of time it's just like, you love your character and you think they're the best thing ever. And you keep like, well, my character should do this. And I think this would be good and cool. And But the input he has, you know, going back to the special features from, from three and on where we really get to see what he was like on set and, and things like that, where he he's just talking about story elements. Like it, it's, it's better if we don't show this. It's better if we do show this. Why shouldn't this happen? And and his understanding of like where to put the camera and stuff. Yeah, I I, I really do think he could make a fantastic action movie. I think you're right there, DJ. Um, and then just on that helicopter chase, you know, we, we don't have as many uh, frames of references for uh, for helicopter chases as we do for <laughs> car chases. Uh, which might make it easier for this one to fill that spot. But, I mean, regardless, this is like, again, like my, my favorite chase scene in the air, I guess. And similarly to the skydiving scene, there is, there is a look that you get when doing it for real that simply cannot be replicated. Like, you could make a CGI helicopter sequence that looked fantastic, but there's just something about doing it for real. Just the way the background looks, the way the camera moves over the landscape, the, the way the the movement and speed is captured that you just, you could never recreate that. There's just so many tiny variables that you just can't recreate with CGI. Like even if you're shooting live action plates, there's just something about the way the IMAX camera captures the landscape that is, it just gives you a feeling that you could never have any other way. Did you guys notice how during the helicopter sequence or at least certain sequences, mainly the IMAX sequences, they, uh, it almost looked like just pure raw footage. It was digital. Like the, the rest of the film, the movie was shot on film. The helicopter sequence and the, the skydiving sequence were shot digitally because you can't stick a gigantic IMAX film camera on, on a helicopter right. like that. Okay. So, and the the color correction is a little different. Um, yeah, yeah, it was look looks yeah kind of raw. Um, it was a little bit jarring, but at the same time, I was so in, uh, I was so in the movie that I didn't mind it, and I kind of liked it. Um, just because I just, I felt like I was, I felt like I was a part of it. Yeah. And I, I, I was, I, I saw this movie three times in the theater. I never noticed the aspect ratio change. Like we we're cutting back and forth between, you know, Ilsa and Benji and the, and the helicopter, you know, it's constantly cutting back to, you know, between IMAX ratio and the standard widescreen ratio. I, I never noticed that before until this last viewing because it's so gripping. Yeah. But it, it was a little jarring this time, but I, it's amazing. I don't really care that much. See, there's almost something that like. I like about like switching to the IMAX ratio for uh, for those sequences. It reminds me of of like watching like The Dark Knight or something. Like whenever whenever you could tell that they're shooting in IMAX, I kind of get like oh oh like uh oh something's about to go down. They're pulling out the IMAX cameras, <laughs> um, and that's like what it felt here. Like okay, we're back to the helicopter chase. This is this is intense. This is a scene like probably like I've never seen, and and again, some of the shots are just so gorgeous to look at. Like I mean, we're flying these huge helicopters. We've we've got uh, these huge cameras. Like it's there's there's so much going on there, but they still find just a lot of really really good looking shots, and it's such such an entertaining sequence. I think like if I had one criticism of this film, it might be that there maybe is just too much great action. Like this movie is exhausting. Like walking to the theater, like I yeah, I'm just tired. When I was thinking about rewatching the film, I felt I had to factor like factor in the fact that I'll be going to be exhausted for the rest of the day. 
and I think I would have would have to ding this film a little bit. Just, maybe there's just too much action. Just think about what I would have cut. Uh, maybe like shorten the running chase, and and also after the, after the helicopters crash and they're like tumbling down the hill and like falling down this ravine, and it's like these. It gets kind of goofy, and 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 it's a lot. It's a lot of CGI, and when a film is so grounded, any CGI stands out. And so when the CGI is so huge. It just didn't look as good as the rest of the film. I think they probably would have just cut out the whole goofy where the helicopters keep crashing into each other and rolling down the hill. Um, I think if you like maybe just trimmed out like five minutes of action, this film might have been a little less of an ordeal to get through. I mean, like it, it's all great action scenes, but I think there's such a thing as just too much. Um, yeah, but that yeah, it's just. It's still like like any like that, that that sequence with the helicopters on the ground that would have been a fantastic action sequence in a Fast and Furious film, but in a in a in a film that has been so tangible and gritty, it just felt kind of just too fantastical for me. Like it's not that there's too much too much action, and the fact that I feel so exhausted afterwards to me is like one of the defining features <laughs> of it. Like spoiler alert, I'll, I'll say right now, like this is this is my favorite of the series. Um, and I think it's just, it feels more than any of them for me. It just, it feels like an event. Like I'm yeah. not just sitting down to watch Mission Impossible. It's like, I like, I'm, it's, it's fallout. Like this is, this is something. Um, this is, this is, like you said, it's an ordeal, but for me, it's like, it's, this, it's an ordeal in the good, in a good kind of way. I, I had the same problem with the helicopter scene though. And so like my wanting to reshape and remove a lot of what happens there isn't from a desire of like it's it, this is too exhausting there's too much action it's just it, it's the other thing you said where this the action has been so grounded the movie has been so gritty and real that honestly the first viewing the, the helicopter's already caught on a rock you know like it you got this hook that's barely keeping it on and that was already a bit much for me especially considering like it was you know, when you bring up, you know, CGI that kind of takes you out of the moment. This is this is the moment for me where, like, you can just tell the rock and the hook. Like, there's no emotion, but you can still tell, like, that that doesn't even look real. Um, and so that was a bit much. And then whenever it breaks and somehow stays completely parallel instead of flailing about, it just, it falls perfectly parallel along the rocks and catches on that, like, little groove again. I kind of rolled my eyes in the theaters and it ruined what was all pretty much a perfect experience at that point. And if it happened like halfway through, like something like this, that would have been another thing. But for the big, the, the final moment, the last little bit of action that we're being blessed by uh, experiencing this, this other bit of action from McQuarrie, for that to be this kind of, CGI excessive sequence that defies physics incredibly explicitly. It 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 hurt the ending for me a bit. Um, so yeah, it's it's not that I I felt like I was watching too much action. It's just this feels like it's uh, standing in opposition to to the way action has been shot, and it just feels like you said it just it feels goofy. Yeah, I would also agree with that. I think the multiple crashes is a bit excessive. You could have just in the one and then and then just have them land on the mountaintop and then they get into the fight. You know, you can do that. Um, but 
apart from that, I think the reason I didn't get as maybe as exhausted as as um, as a lot of people did is mainly because all of the action scenes serve a purpose and they don't just happen. Um, and I, I, I think they all and and that also that's also one of the great things about what makes Ethan Hunt such a great character in this movie is that he's such an active protagonist and that most of the stuff that's happening in the movie is because he made a, a choice um, and not because someone uh, he's reacting to something. He is, he's either having to do one thing or the other and he's choosing one thing and that's why we're getting into this action scene, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, and that's, and that's why I, I get, I'm kind of, I get sold on these action scenes um and not so much uh, exhausted by them is because I know they're going somewhere. Yeah. Pacing is such a kind of hairy and personal thing between people. I, I, I definitely get that. I, I just do feel like it's just like, I, and I, as a person who loves action films, I loves action films that leaves you exhausted is saying something that, if, <laughs> that I watched an action film that left me too exhausted. So, but it's, it's all good action. Um, And one last thing I do have to cut praise just how well constructed that final sequence is where, you give every character something to do. You know, you get this beautiful scene between Julia and Luther. You get Ilsa and Benji fighting for their lives, like literally. And then you have Ethan having, you know, trying to go off in the helicopter and they've lost communication. So they have to basically have blind trust that the other person has done their job. Like if any one of these people fail, everyone's going to die. And they, they have no idea how well the other person is doing, but they just have to just go ahead and do it. Like, and they'll be like, you know, you're in a helicopter, and he's in another helicopter. How are you going to do this? Like, I'll, I'll figure it out. And then the, I love the faith that Luther has in Ethan towards the end. We're like, you know, you know, what if we? How do we know if he's done it? Like, he'll get it done. <laughs> Just they're arguing. Like, well, should we cut out one second or two seconds? That's a whole second. We'll never get back. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way that sequence just builds and builds, giving every person something to do, and just the, the stakes and the threat, and the realization that Ethan's going to have to crash his helicopter into another helicopter and hope he survives. Uh, it just it just builds. It's so beautifully constructed, to, and it just by the end you are completely on edge. The way it just ratchets up, it ratchets up the tensions throughout the entire sequence, and the, the fade to white, and you cut back to him, and he spits out the trigger. It's it's so satisfying. That's one of my favorite reveals. It like it it runs the the risk of like being the kind of thing that I dislike, where it's like unearned and and just it's like we don't need that much tension for a scene, which I guess is my co- complaint of like the helicopter getting sl- like falling further and fur- further off the cr- cliff. Can't speak, um, but that there's something about that reveal, and I guess it's because it's like the reveal of the outcome of of three different things happening at once like you said like there's so many different layers so many things happening that when we cut away and we're all depending on this one thing and then we just see him again and he spits it out it's like oh my goodness this like i i mean we know they're not going to blow up the entire team and his fiance right. and like but yeah in the moment i almost thought I the like movie asking, was ambitious like, enough to try it i would have rioted <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it would be a crime if we didn't at least talk a little bit about Ilsa, played by the wonderful Rebecca Ferguson. I don't like her as much in this film as I did the previous one. I thought like her struggle and her arc across that film was just perfect. This like 
you, you know, the whole thing was her trying to get back home, trying to, you know, clear her name, trying to, you know, free herself from this system that was using her. And it felt a little disappointing that she was essentially dropped back into the exact same identical position where her government's again left her out to dry and she has to do this thing. It felt like a little, like they were kind of forcing the conflict between her and Ethan. Like, both actors are fantastic and their chemistry is great. So they were able to pull it off, but it just was a little disappointing. They, they, they kind of felt like they reverted her character development again to make it work. I do, but I do love like, that, that that's dropped halfway through the film and she just becomes another team, another, you know, another part of the team afterwards. And that felt a lot more natural um, than kind of replacing her in the same situation again. But you know, that said, uh, Rebecca Ferguson is just fantastic. She is great. I, I, I agree. I had the same, like, I guess problem with, with what they do with the character at first, where, it was just so well done in Rogue Nation. I remember, like, she's honest. She, I think even a, a week away from recording, I think I still stand by saying, like, she's my fav- favorite character of that movie. Um, and it was a little bit disappointing because I love the intrigue of her at first. You know, when she's shooting at them again, like, she's trying to take out Lane and, and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, what's going on? This isn't where we left Ilsa before. What's happening? And then she's like, yeah, uh, nothing changed. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> we just kind of move on. It's like, oh, so we're 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 just we're back there. Um, but like you said, once I feel like once the plot involves her beyond just like this kind of obstacle, um, it's like right back with the character that I love. Not that like her character was never really the problem. You know, her mode it made sense. She's still like this person fighting for. Her, her freedom and stuff. It's just, it's frustrating. And I think it cheapens the ending of Rogue One, or dang it, now I did it, of Rogue Nation um, just a little bit. But it leaves the character in a really good place, I think. Yeah, I, I do. Um, I do say that the bringing her back as the wild card again was, it had me a little bit like, uh, why are we, why are we doing this again? Um, especially with the way that we ended the last one, like you said. And uh, I feel like a lot of that was just they didn't know how to introduce her in this film except that way and then have her merge back into a team member. Yeah, that makes sense. I just don't know. I don't know how else they were going to do that. And they were like, you know what? We're just going to roll the dice, do it this way. And you know what? I... In my eyes, at least, it, it turned out well, even though I'm not crazy about the fact that they that she's kind of doing the same thing she was before. But at the very least, she had plausible motivation that I, I can buy. Yeah, it doesn't break like any... The logic checks out on inspection. It's just like thematically, um, it's not super satisfying. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if what you said is right, where it's like, this isn't even how we want to use her like her being a part of the team is really what we want from her but how do we introduce her well we'll just say this and and we'll you we'll go this route for a little bit and once she's established in the plot again we'll abandon that and 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 put her where we're, we're trying to get her it does kind of feel like here's ilsa again yeah all right well i th- you know there's plenty more to talk about i think we've pretty well given a, a good impression of this film um so let's really quickly move into the score uh by lauren balf um did uh, you guys get a chance to listen to the music at all 
Yes. Oh yeah. Um, so actually, let's I start with you, DJ. Uh, what, are, what what do you think overall of this uh, this score? And what are some of your favorite tracks? Uh, I love uh, Lauren Balfe's score here. Um, I think it's a great. It fits the movie so well, um, with heavy percussion and uh, and the horns just just building and lots. And uh, I think we mentioned this in the chat. Lots of bongos. <laughs> um, it, it just it helps create that suspense. And um, I mentioned this before uh, in um, in our conversations before is um, it felt like a, a combination of a, of a Hans Zimmer and a kind of Thomas Newman Skyfall score. And um, I think there was another one that I was thinking, maybe a little bit of James Newton Howard in there. Um, but kind of a much like Macquarie getting a, a lot of inspiration from a lot of great directors and or composers and then making it his own. Um, and I think this and just the way he meshed the the Mission Impossible theme into a lot of the songs and um, just a, oh, it's just great. But uh, as far as the specific songs that I would go with um or tracks free fall is definitely one of my favorites i think that that plays in so well with the uh with the halo jump um building the tension and then once the lightning strikes the when the horns go like i i i love the way that that suspense builds and then it it ends up satisfying at the end um another one is scalpel and hammer um there's a there's a bit with uh, some violins towards the middle of the song, right when, um, right when they're kind of just lying on the ground and they're about to start fighting. Um, it's it's like a break in between two halves of this uh, this buildup, um, and then let's, the exchange is probably my other uh, favorite one. Yes. Um, that one is, <laughs> I, I just, I love the way that plays into the movie with the, uh, with the big shot of the city and, and just the, the quiet buildup. And then eventually it builds up into the, um, into the heavy suspense and the music. And it just, ah, it's, it's a really, it's a fun score. And honestly, like I work out to this music, like it, <laughs> like I, 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 I listen to like normal music too, but like I, I occasionally listen to a, uh, a film score and movies like Fallout and The Dark Knight and and uh, a few others. Like there's some songs in there that I they just they make you feel like you're you're the hero in, in a movie and and they I don't know I don't know what it is but they make you want to run like Tom Cruise. Yeah, James. Yeah, I I listened to it this time. <laughs> I am so proud of you, James. I could cry. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't even need the motivation of the episode this time just because this, I mean, all of the scores are good, but by far this one, in my opinion, makes its presence known the most, where a lot of the times I love a score without realizing that it's amazing. Like, or at, it'll, it'll take me listening to a score isolated to, to realize how much, uh, how much it helps the movie or, or how good the score it actually or how good of a score it actually is and then rewatching the movie then I'll pick up and it's like okay yeah I remember this track and my brain's picking up on it now but in this movie I really feel like I I didn't need to have 
to have listened to any of this by itself to to notice it here like it's it's shouting itself to the viewer it's highlighting everything and it's all it's all done so well as far as track man i'm i'm tr i'm going to try to just run through this really quickly i feel like i've highlighted half the half the whole soundtrack i really like your mission at the very beginning it's it's very very zimmery uh that piano is incredible like it tells you all like it conveys a level of intrigue and mystery without any need for words like you just so you, the, the, re the really fast high notes yeah like what i love about that it's it's the the plot theme I, i've called it the suspense theme in the previous episodes you Dun, da dun, da dun, da dun. Like that appears yep. all throughout the entire series, but it's that played really high, really fast in the piano. Wow, I see. I wouldn't have known that. But like the way it's used here is just incredible. And it kind of reminds me of, of the Catwoman theme from The Dark Knight Rises, but but it's still, it's very, it's its own thing here. And so I like the way it's used there. Um, and. And that track really builds really well with the strings and tribal sounding drums. Uh, Good evening, Mr. Hun is also really similar, but uh, it ends up like later on using violins to play a bit of like the actual Mission Impossible theme. Yeah, I, I really like that one as well. I like that it it uses a it runs through a lot of very familiar uh, like Mission Impossible themes and motifs, but just gives it a much darker edge and just builds the the really eerie suspense. Yeah, and uh, should you choose to accept it is also really good. I feel like there's a sense of of weight and a sense of stakes with this piece that I haven't really felt since like Davian being on in Mission Impossible Three, where it's like, oh man, this is this is like this is really really a serious. Just the long notes. Um, it's it's the same theme they play, you know, during his his vision of like what would happen if 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 this happened you know if we went through with it this way and i had to kill these people it's so it's it plays the same note for so long with just like little bitty variations but it's just so evocative it's it's amazing and haunting yeah that, that theme is ca is called ethan's regrets and it kind of plays at like thematically relevant places throughout the film i don't like aside from the the obvious mission impossible themes I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen like, like a, such a, a pointed use of, of theme music in this series, and it's really effective. It's like this very sad, mournful synth rhythm that's just kind of haunting. It reminded me a lot of uh, the score for Split by Westall and Thordson, which I've been listening to a lot recently. Yeah, I actually see, I I hear that really well. Um, I like uh, Fallout. I think it it does a really good job of mixing that classic. It's it's the the intro, the title introduction. And everything. I do love Fallout. I think it mixes. The uh, the classic kind of Mission Impossible theme that we expect, and it's just as fun and awesome as ever. But it it, it blends itself to the tone of the movie really really well, to where it almost doesn't feel like oh this is that fun Mission Impossible. It's like no this is this is designed for this movie. It feels huge. Yeah. Yeah. What what I wrote down is it feels like the music is trying to break itself out of the tune, like there's. And I, I've, I've been kind of li I've been listen purposefully listening to every like title sequence to to try and find where the uh, composer would differ. And this one is is, you know, is very loud and abrasive, and but I love how it ends on a really dark, ominous note. Very, very similar to just the movie itself in terms of like it's 
it's grim and serious, but it'll, like it's also huge and bombastic and in your face. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, sorry to interrupt. The the very the last part went da da, and then it goes boom boom, and it's that's like the fallout of you know the 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 what we've previously seen. Um, I I love the, how just kind of how it plays into that 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 one that the title of it it's it's reflective of the actual music yeah yeah it's it's played over the opening credits which are like wreathed in flame it's like there's a promise of doom there's like a real threat there to it yeah. uh stairs and rooftops is is really really cool it's got a combination of of a lot of the things that i've already talked about how much i love and including a return of like that kind of I think I call it like a James Bond-esque theme that played at the end of Rogue Nation whenever they, they captured Lane for the first time. And you just got these this loud, stylized brass playing. It sounds really cool. Yeah, that, that has the drums and the piano. It's also some really cool vocals. There's one part where Ethan jumps over the roof and the music is like, the vocals kind of get like angelic. Ah, yeah. For a half second. It always makes me chuckle. Free Fall is one of the things that I I'm gonna mention too that uh, that DJ mentioned. Uh, Free Fall is awesome because just listening to it isolated, it almost sounds like it's like trying to belong in a horror film. Like there are moments where it's like, I I feel like this is evoking a mood of like tension and dread, um, and like this impending like creature or stock or you know what you would expect from a horror film. Um, and it makes it makes sense for the context of the film as well, but uh, it feels it would be so out of place in any of the other films, but it works so well here. Um, the exchange is also my favorite track here. Yeah. Whenever we see hit, like we just get the close up of Lane, and you hear the first like da da da, and then you hear it again with the helicopter shot. Um, it gives me the same goosebumps I get like whenever we hear Zimmer's score of Luther's theme. Whenever we see him from the helicopter in BVS. Um, just a perfect like pullback. The other Luther. Do what? Oh yeah. <laughs> I you meant the other Luther Lex, for a Lex Luther from BVS. Whenever we see him from the helicopter, just like kind of pull the camera back. Let's just take in this scene for a little bit. It's amazing. Yeah. What's What's crazy about that thing? It's a six minute track, and it's essentially the exact same rhythm played at slightly just this constant slow escalation of tempo of the same rhythm for six minutes and it never loses you um and it's all it's really appropriate because it's all building up to ethan's decision whether or not to you know ram the truck yeah uh the last three uh, would be a we are never free that is haunting uh it's it's these long strings it just holds on to and then it's uh, I, which I guess is as you said, uh, Ethan's regrets. We just hear this played, and then a really like tragic but beautiful variation of that of the the piano doing the the theme you know this re, the reoccurring theme throughout the film that I've now found out is just a different version of a theme that we've heard many times. Uh, it it blends that into the the really long sad strings of Ethan's regret all into one theme and it's just it's incredible it's like one of the most um enveloping themes i guess where it's just like my mind is completely fixated on this sound that it's just creating it's it's pretty amazing um the syndicate i i like a lot it's a, mm-hmm. a very slow creeping version of the piano where it's 
it feels like it's that theme just played for the villain at first and then it kind of morphs into just this grand sweeping tragedy it's it's incredible yeah it's like this really sad piano and synthesizer it's like this mournful ballad kind of it's crazy yeah and then uh lastly would be mission accomplished i one of the things that i really like about this is we get to just have a, a purely fun version of the theme you know like the day is the day is one there's there's no real need to like try to be super somber again like the, the movie's over however the weight of the movie doesn't go away and so like to be just as big and bold as the movie has been, but without like just trying to be sad again, they include like this full choir during some moments, and it's so cool. Like to hear to hear these like really cool vocals with the the Mission Impossible theme, uh, it sounds really really cool. I'm, I'm mad at that track because he stole the name from my favorite track from the Mission Impossible Two soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, there's so many amazing uh, tracks. I still have a few more to, to highlight. Uh, a storm is coming. It's a pretty short track. It's the it's the bongo drums that play up over over Ethan's dream. It's like just building that sense of dread. Um, change of plan. I, I, this one it's like it's really interesting because it's like constantly every few seconds just she's like it's changing styles and changing the instruments. It's just it's weird. It's like this very discordant piece of music, but it's again you know building dread. Like every one of these songs this in this soundtrack is building dread. Yeah. Uh, there's steps ahead. Oh, I had uh, that is, highlighted as well. That's this is probably my favorite piece. It's it's the plot theme played with bongos and this very deep brass. And what I love what is brilliant about it is it, it keeps what it's doing is it's keeping the momentum from uh from the motorcycle chase into the car chase. Like since it's like a, it's a like a half hour 30 minute piece of action. It, it I think he didn't want to lose that energy. So even though nothing is just walking through a house, it's kind of, it's keeping up that tempo. It's like, it feels like it's almost like marching band kind of yeah. thing, but it's like, it's like, it's telling the audience you can't relax just yet. There's more coming. And then finally uh, there's last resort. And this is just a nice piece of music. And that was like very refreshing. The entire film has just been so intense. We get this like very, it's this very pleasant, hopeful synth music. Uh, it almost felt like it came out of like the oblivion score. Uh, it was just a very, you know, nice, hopeful way to end such an intense, uh, you know, musical experience. Yeah. So that is just a fan, really fantastic soundtrack. <laughs> Pretty sure we went through the entire soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just close. about. All right. So real quickly, um, we had to get get our star ratings and then our rankings for the entire series. Uh, DJ, let's start with you. What is what do you, what do you give this out of five stars? And uh, what do you, how do you rank the uh, Mission Impossible oh, series? Oh man. Um... You know, the fanboy in me of this movie wants to just go straight out five out of five, but I feel like that's too, <laughs> um, that's too biased. So I'll just, I'll give it a 4.5 out of five just for the sake of me being objective. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, as far as my film rankings go for the series, they kind of change depending on the mood, but. I guess on a whim, I would go number six would be MI2. As much as I do thoroughly enjoy that movie, objectively, it is the 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 worst film out of this series. And I, I mean, that's everybody agrees on that. Um, and then number five, and there's a huge gap between six and five. So I hope nobody gets mad when I say number five. But number five, I go MI3. I'm mad. And 
<laughs> and disclaimer for that, I will say it is my it it has my favorite villain out of the entire series. Um, but I just think in the grand scheme of the whole series, I just I don't know. And and this is why I say that the 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 rankings switch because I don't think I would always have it as my number five. I think I would usually have it in my top three or four, but just on a whim, it just goes it goes number five, and that's just the way it is right now. So, uh, number four, I go with the first Mission Impossible, um, because that one has such a distinct feel to it. Um, it's very uh, it it it, ha- it has the Fallout really brought out the more Cold War aspect that Mission Impossible started out with, um, and I think uh, just all the double crossings and just the general aesthetic of that movie is it's it's a different kind of filmmaking than the rest of these movies and that's why i i really enjoy that one uh number three i would go with ghost protocol mainly because that is the one that fully brought me back on board with tom cruise in general i would say but really the mission impossible franchise i was like okay these movies are they really are still good and there is definitely a future for these films um, number two, I would go Rogue Nation because it, it, it upped the ante, and um, I really enjoyed Chris McQuarrie's uh, twist on um, this 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 franchise and his his version of filmmaking. And Fallout is my number one. It probably will be number my, my number one for a while until these next two back to back movies come out. <laughs> I mean, you can just see what we've talked about all day with why I love number one. So yeah. And G James, yeah. Um, so with star rating, I'll I'll do the same thing as as DJ and give it a four point five. I, I think the the fact that that the ending does bother me just as much as it does with the stuff going on with the helicopter, and I think they did themselves a disservice by saying that whole thing took place within fifteen minutes because I, <laughs> I don't buy it at all. Um, but in terms of enjoyment, it's like there's very few films that I'd like to just have me as excited throughout. Um, but yeah, trying to, trying to acknowledge faults 4.5. Um, I'll go, uh, for, uh, I'll do six to, to one, um, instead of starting out at the top, like we usually do. Uh, I think just, uh, my own disclaimer now, I think the only ones that I truly have nailed down are my top two and my bottom one. Um, and everything else is kind of shifting. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's how I feel. So number six for me is is number Mission Impossible two because I, I've also watched that movie for the first time like two years ago. So I don't have the benefit of like the like ah, I just appreciate it for what it was back when I saw it and I've kind of liked it since. I just watched it and I was like, man, I can't hardly enjoy this at all. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. And then. And like I said, so these next three are all very, very close to just shifting around. Um, so my number five would be Ghost Protocol. I think that the Burj Khalifa scene and then the whole like switching the floor numbers as well as the Kremlin uh, sequence are some of my favorite sequences of the entire series. Um, they feel like some of the most original where it's not it's not just a really well done car chase like this is just a cool sequence. This is a cool idea that they created. The gadgets are amazing. Um, I think the only reason that it lands down here is, in my opinion, it, it's the weakest villain of the series. And 
it's the least invested I feel in, in the plot itself, just with the whole nuclear launch codes and everything. Like, I just, I feel like I'm there for the sequences and the plot is just a certain, like, it's just there to facilitate the sequences. Um, but, I mean, the direction is just so good that that's not even really that big of a problem Don't for me. Don't forget Sandstorm. Um, oh, and that Sandstorm is so, oh, visually it's so freaking <laughs> cool. Number four would be... Um, Man, what is number four? Oh, number four is number Mission Impossible 1. Um, and 1 in Ghost Protocol, I can probably say they're pretty much um, side by side in terms of like my enjoyment of them. I'm only giving the edge to 1 uh, because 1, it, it was the start. And 2, I think it's a genre that I see less and less of. And so whenever I do revisit it, it feels more fresh and original than Ghost Protocol does whenever I revisit that. Just like a straight spy espionage movie. Like we really don't have a lot of those now. Um, number three is uh, Rogue Nation. Um, it's just a super clean and polished movie. Um, the opera house scene is just absolutely amazing. And yeah, it's a fantastically directed all around. Uh, number two would be Mission Impossible 3. I think until Fallout, this was by far the most invested in, in any of the plots I had been. Um, it was the first time that um, the series really made Ethan a character. Uh, the villain is fantastic. Um, man, the scene towards the end, like or before they broke in to, to get the rabbit's foot, where he's like, hey, we got to do this because it's the mission. I'm not just doing this because it's my, my wife, but like, if we happen to get her, like it, we've never really seen Ethan like that. And so just in terms of emotionally um, and with a villain that I connected with, it's just a, a plot that I'm really invested in. And then number one would be fallout. Like DJ said, this is one of, one of those rare movies that like you watch it in the theater and you're just like, you're happy that movies are a thing like that, yeah. <laughs> that we've, we've created cameras and effects and stuff to put stuff like this together. It's just, such an experience and the fact that we've got just madmen like Cruz and McQuarrie who are like hey let's jump out of helicopters or, or let's jump out of airplanes and let's fly helicopters into That's each other like, yeah there we go like let's do all of this so let's film it all and let's just and let's never let up let's just constantly be doing this and also making the best version of this kind of thing we've seen with everyone it's it, my my feelings of it were confirmed on this rewatch. We're like, man, even sitting on my couch at home watching it on my TV, like I'm on the edge of my seat and just completely astounded at what's on screen. So yeah, it's my number one. Okay, well I actually give it a four point five as well out of five. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's really close to perfect, but the, the I think the needless convolutions and as well as I think there's just a little too much action kind of holds it back from being a five. Uh, my ranking is um, I guess I'll go backwards like you two. Uh, bottom is uh, Mission Impossible Two. It's a, t- a real mess. It's kind of boring at times, but I do still really enjoy the the action scenes. Um, number five is Mission Impossible. The first one is just a really solid you know action thriller very you know i love you know the cold war aesthetic that dj highlighted is fantastic number four is ghost protocol very fun entertaining film but the plot is as thin as can be there's very little character stuff the villain's boring so it's very entertaining but it, it doesn't quite hold up to the next three uh number three would actually be fallout you know we've talked a whole podcast about it uh number two is mission impossible three i think this is fantastic action and pacing it has that as, as you, you talked about james it has 
it, it reaches emotions that no other film, despite, you know, Rogue Nation of all having fantastic emotion, it reaches emo- emotional levels that no other film has been able to match. Also, it really revamped the series and gave it its identity going forward and allowed, you know, the, the next three, the next two directors to really do what they've done. Uh, the top would be uh, Rogue Nation. I think this is just a perfect film. I'm, I'm like Thanos. Like I'm just look always looking for balance in movies, and I think this is probably the most well balanced. It just it does the stunts. It does it has the action, has the character, the has the plot, it has the villain. Like everything is just great, and it does all the all these areas just perfectly well. Whereas other films have like great strengths but also weaknesses. I just I don't feel like Rogue Nation even has any weaknesses, so that's why it's the top one for me. Okay. Um... <laughs> I know we're going crazy long, but this is going to be our last episode in the series. So I do want to, I do want to go into legacy a bit. Uh, so on, on its initial release, it earned uh, 220 million domestically and 570 million worldwide for a worldwide total of 791 million on its 178 million dollar budget, which is by far the highest budget in the series. But it worked out because this is currently the highest grossing film in the series, both domestically and worldwide. Um, although it's the fourth after Mission Impossible 1, 2, and Ghost Protocol if you adjust for inflation. It's the eighth highest grossing film of 2018, both domestically and worldwide. The highest earners that year were Infinity War, Black Panther, uh, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and The Incredibles 2. Uh, the critical reception was about as rapturous as we uh, as we were here. Uh, I, I, I think, it, like, it, if possible... Like the the critical reception was even more gleeful than it was for Ghost Protocol. I th- that's such a rare thing for an action film, just to see critics and audiences just unite and in lauding a movie like this. It's it's, it's kind of a special occasion. It's cur- it currently has a ninety seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes and eighty six on Metacritic, making it both the highest rated uh, Mission Impossible films on both platforms by a ways. Yes, yeah, so just everybody liked this film. But inexplicably, it didn't get any Academy Award nominations. Like, not getting a cinematography really bothers me the most. Um, but like, just this is like cinema. You know, it's like the highest form of excellence for its genre. It really bothers me. The Oscars just don't pay attention. That's why I don't watch. <laughs> um, so, in terms of legacy, I, I think we're still kind of living in its legacy right now. Um, I think part of its legacy is that it was just so rapturously received that we've got two sequels fast-tracked for 2020 and 2021. Um, so clearly, uh, McQuarrie and Cruz have, have found a stride that, that really works and they're ready to continue on this trend. And, um, and yeah, I, I think the until we have more distance between the film's release uh, and, and, you know, us... It's the immediate reaction to it is kind of its legacy, and and if this reaction continues, then it's it'll be one of the most highly regarded action films ever. And and I mean honestly, I I would love to have seen like a best picture nomination or or just a best director nomination to to acknowledge the fact that McQuarrie is shooting action like nobody shoots action, and it's crazy. And yeah. Um, but fortunately, it looks like it will likely have a, a very, very positive legacy going forward. And I'm, I'm surprised or not surprised. Uh, I'm excited and curious to see what the next two films are going to be like, like if they actually try to top the action here, which I just don't know if can be done or if they try to scale back or, or do something. But yeah, it'll be it'll be fun to see what a post-Fallout Mission Impossible looks like. Ultimately, I think this film's greatest legacy is going to be uh, Mustache Gate. Like, <laughs> that's a, you can't get much bigger than that. <laughs> it's so crazy. Like, 
I don't I can't it's so, I don't know of any other thing where like two entirely random productions were so hugely affected by each other and you know the mustache became a whole meme like that thing is taking on is an entire life on, on its own you know completely independent from fallout it's just fascinating the way internet works <laughs> yeah so that was mission impossible fallout and that is the close of the mission impossible series and if we're still going in two years, you can bet your butt that we're going to uh, be talking about those two movies. But yeah, that is the close of the series for now. Uh, so thanks for listening, guys. And again, if you enjoyed the show, I'd like to ask you to please go and rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to like us on Facebook, we are there at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are there as at FranchisedPod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And uh, thanks for coming on, DJ. Happy uh, to be here. This was a lot of fun. Um, and where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me at Mr. Five Cents on Twitter and Instagram. That's Five Cents with a Z at the end. And what about you, James? Uh, you can follow me uh, mainly on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's JLA. Whoops, let me redo that. I don't even know how to spell my name. Um, it's JLHAMRI. Um, and you can also join us over on Facebook. We are there. Um, we are, you and I are both admins for a group called Star Wars Fans Who Actually Like Star Wars. We created it because <laughs> DJ cyberbullied me. Um, <laughs> Couldn't help so, myself. There you go. Um, but yeah, those, that's mainly where you can find me. And I'm also on Letterboxd. I am there as Gabriel Green. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm there as at Gabe A. Green. And I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. So next week, we'll be starting a new series. Uh, we'll be going through the three Walden Media uh, Chronicles of Narnia films, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, and Voyage of the Treader. These movies were a big part of my childhood, and I'm kind of nervous <laughs> as to whether, how well they'll hold up, but this is going to be fun because they were, they were very instrumental in, my, in building my love of film. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel. What's done is done when we say it's done. It's done.